Hey everyone, this is episode 45 of Sketch Watch Play, a pop culture podcast talking movies, TV, cartoons, video games, and everything that comes with those. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, and most third-party podcast apps and directories. If you want to stay updated or send us feedback and topic suggestions, you can email us at sketchwatchplaygmail.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at sketchwatchplay, also planning Instagram under the same name soon, join the Discord server located in episode descriptions, and if you enjoy what you hear, you can support the show by leaving positive reviews on Apple Podcasts and spreading the word to friends, family, and social media. I am John Fleury, and I'm very happy to have today's guest back on the show. From the Death Parade and Masters of the Universe Revelation episodes, Dave Roberts from the UK is back to talk media. Dave, how are you? Hey, dude. It's good to be back. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited to talk about today's topics, uh, especially this movie, because we've been planning this for a while, and... Uh, you know, for for a variety of reasons, mainly at my end, uh, we we couldn't really get around to it till now. So I'm, yeah, I'm really it's it's okay. We we this this show is no stranger to rescheduling both on the guests and then on my end. Life happens. Yeah, unfortunately, it does. But yeah, uh, but the, very- yeah, it was. I think the original plan was I reached out to in like November, like let's try to do a Christmas episode because I got this Christmas movie, and then we just had to delay it a bit. But I'm still okay with recording it. You know, it's gonna come out in February. I'm like, it's a winter episode, and I also like to go back uh, with podcasts I like and listen to re-listen to episodes like you know later months and years right now. So this will be a fun mm-hmm. one to crack open when Christmas comes along again. I, I've never been against watching Christmas movies outside of the festive season. Uh, Me neither. For Me neither. It's just I, it's just a th- podcast theme to do Christmas movies or holiday movies, you know, at at the mm-hmm. holiday period. And, yeah, uh, we're I, gonna break from tradition a little bit. A little bit. I I signed up for um, uh, Amazon Prime recently and uh, found the Bill Goldberg um, Santa horror movie on there. Which, which uh, one's I that? I think it's called Santa's Sleigh. Oh, I've heard uh, that title. Yeah, so uh, I, I'm very much planning on watching that at some point in the near future. So uh, you know, I films films are fun to watch regardless of what time of year it is. You know, I'll watch yeah. a Halloween movie uh, outside of uh, October, no problem whatsoever. Yeah, and I keep meaning to like try and watch more holiday movies during the actual holidays against the spirit, yeah. but I didn't succeed at that so much last year because I was busy. Yeah, it can be difficult sometimes, and, and you know you're not always in the mood to watch Jingle All the Way on Christmas <laughs> Eve, or you know, um, or any uh, day. Die Hard, Die Hard is, is like the the brilliant movie that you can watch any time of year. Yes, and if it's Christmas time. It's you a just Christmas movie that you don't need yeah. an excuse to watch outside of Christmas. Exactly. Same Absolutely. goes with Die Hard too. I like that one too. Mm, yes, <laughs> I still need to watch. Um, it's funny. My parents, well, not just parents. My mom and I caught up on Die Hard a little bit like five years ago we had never seen any of them or she hadn't seen them in a long time so we watched mm. the first two and I know the general opinion is that the first three are good and then fourth one's okay then fifth one's a dumpster fire um, so we meant to watch with a vengeance but we never got around to it and then a few weeks ago he and my da- she and my dad watched it and I still need to sit down and watch that movie yeah, like the fourth and fifth ones, I think, are perfectly serviceable action films. The problem that they have is that they're trying to stand up against the first three. And I, I'm not someone that necessarily thinks that the third one isn't a good film just because it doesn't follow the formula of the first and second. Uh, like the first and second movies very much follow that kind of uh, bottle episode format of like yeah. murder show or something. Yeah, I know the third one is more like city spanning. Exactly. Yeah. Like we're trapped, but we just happen to be trapped in a massive city. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I, you know, I, I think also, uh, the third movie was never meant to be a diehard movie. It was really? just that somebody found the script and said, this is a great movie, but it's not going to, it's not, it, it hasn't got enough promise for us to get it made as is. 
what if we put John McClane in it as the main character and make it a Die Hard movie? Which is interesting because the first movie was originally based on a script that was meant to be made with... Um, I've heard about this. Sinatra. Sinatra as McClane. Yeah, as as the John McClane character. So By the series, 80s, that would have been a tough sell. It would have been. It would have been. But I, I think it, this series has a history of films being made that are completely out of kilter with what has come before it. And um, I, I think four and five are perfectly fine movies. Like They don't stand up to the first and second movie specifically. Mm-hmm. I think the third movie is decent, but the, the fourth and fifth, they, they do what they are supposed to do. They go boom and um, everyone has a, a good time watching John McClane jump on top of a Harrier jump jet, which, you know, I, I, I think you, you should watch that movie at least once just to see the stupid stunts. that I've, go on I've heard film. about the helicopter stuff. Yeah. Uh, oh, I think that's God. like the the highlight of the fourth one. Mm, yeah. And let's not forget like the best Die Hard movie never to have the name Die Hard, which is, of course, uh, True Lies. Um, which I still need to see. Oh, man. Wait yeah. until you do. That is, a, that is such a fun movie. Yeah. Um, so, so much fun. Yeah. I, I'm just thinking now about uh, modern day Bruce Willis and how little shit he gives. Uh, <laughs> he will like, literally do anything. Did you do you watch Red Letter Media, the YouTube channel? Um, I, no, I don't. But I remember someone mentioning, and maybe they were talking about having watched that. That they went through the entirety of Bruce Willis's twenty twenty one output. This, they just put this video up yesterday. I saw it because um, disclosure. I just went and saw Jackass Forever yesterday. That was a lot of fun. Oh, nice. Is yeah. it good? Yes, it is. Uh, awesome. It's similar to the others in that I think there are some stunts that are you know better than others but uh it's so worth it for the ones that really land like i was and it's great to see them with the crowd even in covid times because that that laughter is just it's the same principle as when you saw when i saw no way home opening weekend like that enhances it i still have very fond memories of the first couple of jackass movies Um, yeah i saw the second one in college Oh, nice. Good memories. You've got a lot of memories mixed up with that. But like the soundtrack that came with that first one was just immense. I still have that uh, CD and it gets dusted off every now and then. Nice. Uh, Love singing along to If You're Going to Be Dumb, You've Got to Be Tough. It's one of those. I remember Flesh into Gear, uh, the credit song. Yes. Yeah, that's an amazing song as well. Like whenever I hear that, it just brings back memories of watching it in the theater with my friends and. Oh man, yeah, good good times. Movies yeah. have this power, don't they, to take you back to where you were when you first watched them. And uh, sometimes it's a good feeling, sometimes not so good. But no, this is a good I, one. It's it's amazing yeah. how like they visibly age, but like their demeanor has not changed. It's the same old like yeah. frat pack. Yeah, Steve O with gray hair. Um, everyone with gray hair. And basically. Johnny, yeah. They actually, uh, some people point out he starts like the first half hour where it's dyed black, but then later he just gives up on it. <laughs> I'll give Wee Man credit. He looks the same. Wee Man does not age. I, I swear he does not age. Um, I, it's kind of a bummer that Bam isn't yeah. really... Uh, but I, I understand that there were issues. I'm not sure what those issues were, whether they were personal or whether they were uh, issues between members of the crew. It, from what I understand, it basically came down to a lot of drug addiction problems. and They kind of felt that the Jackass vibe wouldn't help his his rehab. Yeah, it was the wrong place for him at the time. And that's completely fair. And, and hopefully he's gone and got the treatment that he needs and he's in a better place now. But yeah. uh, it, it is a shame when you don't get all of the people that could possibly. Yeah. Well, they also couldn't get Ryan done because car crash. Of course. 
Of course. But they get yeah. some new people in it that are fun as well. But I was going to say, <laughs> we went on this little tangent, um, a tangent from a tangent, from Bruce Willis to, to Jackass. But yeah, Red Letter Media, I saw this on my phone, like, right before I went to the movie. They, I've watched some of it. They decided, they, they realized that, like, he's basically changed his career to just doing these, like, what they call straight-to-red-box movies that you wouldn't hear about otherwise. Yeah. Uh, that are, like, shot on a budget, often overseas for cheap, and he, he most of the budget goes to getting him. And, like, they point out in some of them, like, he has an earpiece, and they're, like, feeding him his lines. He's not even bothering to remember them. And I'm just yeah. like, wow, he really doesn't care anymore. It gets even worse than that, because, um, the, I, and I can't remember where this was. It Maybe it was the King cast, or Best Movies Never Made, or one of the other movie podcasts that I listened to. Uh, but anyway, they were basically saying like, you know, Bruce Willis has been in a bunch of movies. Maybe, oh, it could have been, let's talk about stuff actually. Mm. Um, they were talking about how Bruce Willis has been in all of these movies we've never heard of this year. And we're just going through them all. And, um, he's, uh, they're mostly parts where he just sits. He doesn't even get up and walk around. And they were convinced at some point that maybe he'd lost the use of his legs and that Ooh. he was in really poor health as a result. <laughs> and like, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe there's some element of truth to that. Like if he's not particularly mobile at the moment, because a lot of it is him sitting in a car, him sitting at an office desk, sitting in a room. Uh, yeah. And, and like, as well as that, if he's not in the best of health, then maybe giving him his lines through an earpiece is the best way to get the performance out of him. I don't know. I, I guess that's, I didn't know when it was like darker places like that. I, because it was so easy to assume he just was coasting. I still wish he would get some like bigger, more quality movies though. It's not like, it's not like he, he, he has no zero screen credit anymore or anything. He's still Bruce Willis. He can still lead a movie. Yeah. And uh, like he was, uh, I mean, I, I say recently, like it happened in the last year. It feels like it was in the last year to me, but like he was in the latest Expendables movie, which was probably about five years oh, ago. Well no, I think his last big movie was the uh, Death Wish remake that nobody liked. Oh shit, he was in that as well, wasn't he? And that was a number of years as well. So, yeah, I, I, I think like, like there's a good actor in there with yeah. Bruce Willis. Like, always I've always been. enjoyed watching his movies, but the the problem is that like everything you hear about him is he's he's a bit of a dick. Oh, uh, the, like the Kevin Smith stories. Yes, the Kevin Smith stories. And in fairness, he's not worked with him for years, and maybe he just caught him at a bad time. Yeah, I think after Cop Out, that was a one and done. Yeah, pretty much. But uh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't disbelieve uh, any further stories of Bruce Willis being perhaps not the easiest person to get on with. But do you necessarily have that long and successful a career if you're that much of an a-hole all the time? I'm not so convinced. So I don't know. It swings and roundabouts. It's but, hard to uh, say. I, it could be a case where even if he's, uh, like you know, to use British terminology, a bit of a knob, uh, he <laughs> is still, you know, he can still get a good performance out. I'm sure there are a lot of people who are like, yeah. we can deal with this if they do their job, you know? So, yeah, uh, like no but, people, but know, I'm not going like, to make judgments on people I, I've never met. So no, of course not. But like, you know, I, I, I don't think that they necessarily care about the opinions of, of two friends on a podcast. No, uh, you know what I mean? Someone, um, pe people with no stock in the industry. Well, exactly. And I've got no problem saying, like, I, I know jack shit about the industry. I, I have no cachet or weight in any industry at all. I but. know more about the animation industry than the live action one. Even then, I don't have clout in it. I, you know. It, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it can be. It's it's one of those things, you know. We the the internet is is democratizing, but is it necessarily in a good way? Eh, maybe not. I don't know. But we're having fun and putting stuff out and uh, 
having con- these conversations, which I, I really enjoy. So I'm trying to remember again, how we got to Bruce Willis. I, I know we talked about Die Hard, but I'm trying to remember why we got to. I remember. You were catching up on the Die Hards. Yeah, and- well, I caught up on the first two years ago, and then my, my mom's getting ahead of me. Um, but I think she might stop at three because I think my – well, no, they might watch more, but I know my dad watched the fifth one and was telling her, nah, nah. But maybe someday I'll catch up on the rest of them just with lowered expectations. But yeah, um, so we have some other topics to talk about. This is yeah, this is what happens when when Dave comes on because it's just this great like free form. You never know which direction <laughs> it's going to go in. I have a reputation to uphold, John. What can I say? <laughs> you do a good job of it. Uh, so let's start with uh, as always. We have one topic for each of us for recent media, and then our main topic. Mine is going to be a bit of a nostalgic one, and it actually ties into one of the conversations and appearances I had on, on your shows. Uh, for those on, uh, not in the know, I know Dave from two podcasts on the Fan Off Media Network, Generation Animation, uh, which I've been on recently to talk Bell, and uh, Eerie International, a really cool horror movie podcast, and the reason I reached out to him about today's movie. And, man, back in, I think, 2014, 2015, when they first announced the uh, remake of Final Fantasy VII... Uh, I came on to talk Advent Children with you and revisit that. I was actually pretty happy with how it all out. So I've actually been getting back into playing the original version on PC with some modifications that I'll get into. But I, I, I'm going to admit something off the bat that might piss some listeners off. For a long time, I was never that much on the Final Fantasy VII hype train. And the big reason, the big reason for this is that I didn't play the game for the first time until like four or five years after it had first come out and been a phenomenon on the PS1. Uh, yeah. See, I never owned the PS1. I could only afford one system, and I was a Nintendo kid. And I did have friends and neighbors with the PS1, but they never had that game. They were more into like Spyro, Crash, Tekken, a bunch of other series. Sure. Uh, and so I had to wait until I saved up and got a PS2 when I first started high school and, and could, you know, get jobs and stuff. Uh, a lot of good memories of the PS2. I need to give that its own episode someday. Because the PS2 was fully backwards compatible with PS1, I took that opportunity to dive into that whole Final Fantasy 7 through 9 trilogy. And I definitely like 7, but not enough for me to beat it or for it to have that same impact on me that it has so many others. Like, looking back, I kind of feel like you were either a Final Fantasy 7 kid or an Ocarina of Time kid, and I was definitely the latter. Yeah, um, I, it really depended on what system you had. Uh, I, I was a, a PlayStation aficionado by that point. Um, I say aficionado, I had had it for like a year. Um, so Final Fantasy VII, if I remember correctly, it came out in 1997. I believe so. And uh, I, I got it pretty much at launch. Uh, it's one of the few times back then that I got a launch game. Uh, normally, I would wait for them to uh, come down in price a little bit. And in some cases, even wait for the Platinum Collection to add them to their roster. Yep. Uh, in the day, you used to be able to get Platinum games for £20. That's right, 20 English pounds. Wow. Um, which at the time, with the exchange rates, I reckon it would probably would have been equivalent to about $30. So Not too bad. Um, I, I remember PS1 games were pretty inexpensive. Yeah, they were. They absolutely were. This was what the, like one of the golden... I, I, I don't suppose you can call it the golden era, because the golden era really would have been when the, the NES was around. Um, but this was like a second golden era of video gaming, where games were cheap and plentiful... Um, and PlayStation just absolutely dominated the software space, not yeah. necessarily the console space, because I remember there being a lot of arguments and discussions over lunch at school about what was better, 
Was it the PlayStation 1 with uh, 32 bits of power, or was it the N64, which had double the power, but because it was based on uh, cartridges, didn't have the same size of games? Which is the reason FF7 was was brought over to PS1 instead, because they didn't do all those, they wanted to do all those pre rendered backgrounds and cutscenes and couldn't fit that on a cart. Absolutely. And Sony snapped it up in an instant. They were like, come and uh, play with us. Basically, uh, Final Fantasy originally was going to be developed for the N64 back when Sony were working with Nintendo, funnily yep. enough, yep. Um, to develop the uh, the next Nintendo console. Um, no, then, I think it was uh, they were going to do a Sega CD type thing. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it was going to be disc-based. Uh, one of these consoles ended up surfacing a about a year or so ago. Yeah, a prototype was being auctioned or something. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know it made it that far. And uh, it was sent around to Ben Heck and a bunch of other people, and they looked into it, and they were like, yeah, this shit works. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it never came to fruition. And as a result, Square, um, because they, they were just Square at the time, uh, Square Enix was later when they uh, had a, a merger with, uh, funnily enough, a company called Enix. Yep. Um, and um, it was so they were Square Soft at the time, if I remember. They were. And they basically said, we need the storage space. We're going to go with Sony. Um, and so for the first time ever, um, a Final Fantasy game did not appear on a, uh, on a cartridge based console and instead came to the PlayStation. And it was eye opening, absolutely eye opening. Like this game, because of the fact that I got it at launch and it was my first Final Fantasy game, actually. Um, and my first JRPG, now that I think about it, it opened my eyes to that entire genre. The story was absolutely epic. Um, the turn-based, uh, battles were something that I'd never experienced before. I was very much into platformers and racing games and football and things like that. Never had played uh, an RPG before. And ju- the whole game was just on this whole other level. Um, the size of it made it revolutionary from what came before in the Final Fantasy space. And, uh, again, for me, like, it's, it was the first time that, I had uh, used anything approaching this kind of customization for characters where you can choose what party members you have and what weapons they're using, what material you put inside of those weapons to give yeah. them different buffs. The material was a big thing for me. It was kind of, if you have you played the 6 game, the last Super Nintendo one? No, no, I've never gone back to play the older games. Ooh, 6 is, might be my favorite actually. It's really good. I, love, I would love yeah. a remake of that. But, um, it is getting remastered this month. That as so, we'll see about that. But uh, it had a similar system to material called Espers, where you would equip things that both did the summons, but also built you know, like gave you certain like magic abilities. And the material built on that with like being able to combine them for different effects. Uh, yeah, it was thankfully not a copy paste. They actually built on it. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I'm, I, I even if I wasn't there when it happened, I can certainly recognize uh, FF Seven for kind of that impact and helping to build the idea of like, especially cinematic visual storytelling in games. Oh God. Yeah. FMVs were a huge thing at the time. And this game had so many of them. Like I, I playing it. I think like that opening section is very iconic with cloud leaping off the train. And uh, there's that shot where you, you first run out towards the plant and the camera does an FMV like pan up to show one of the reactor plants, like towers. And, I can only imagine what that had, how that uh, affected people who were so used to much more static landscapes at the time. 
I lost my mind when I saw that. Like the, the the camera swooping through the city and then focusing on the train and then seamlessly and and it it doesn't feel seamless now if you go back and play it. But for the time, it was absolutely seamless the transition from FMV to gameplay. Yeah, because they they layered polygonal characters on real time characters on top of it and then would like instantly transition to the uh, pre rendered backgrounds mm. you can move around on. Yeah, and it was very the clever. Was, the artwork was absolutely stunning, and because it was all still images, it wasn't fully rendered 3D environments. No, so it'd be more detailed. It was more detailed. It took up a lot less space. It was quicker to load. Uh, it was just, it was genius level design all around, honestly. Um, th- there were sections of that game which were fully 3D environments, like uh, the, the snowboarding. Um, the overworld was 3d and the snowboarding game which i played constantly at the um the golden saucer was it gold ring gold saucer gold saucer that's right i was on the right line Uh, it's been a long time since i've played played this game but gold saucer was like i i had a separate save file which i um i I would boot up every time i wanted to go snowboarding oh nice Uh, and it wasn't the best snowboarding game on PlayStation. Of course it wasn't. But as a kid that didn't necessarily have the funds to buy multiple games um, to, to scratch mul- multiple itches, it was as good as having a snowboarding, a dedicated snowboarding game. Yeah, uh, I'm very interested in how they're, they're going to uh, handle that in the remake because I think the next game is going to be that portion. Uh, going to be a series of it. Uh, yeah. yeah, but... Uh, so one of the things that uh, is also cool about it is this the their fun character dynamics like that initial trio of Cloud, Barrett, and Tifa like there's just a lot of fun conflicts for dynamics personal histories uh, like you even without like voice work or like animated faces you you get involved with them. You do, and and I really love that chibi style that they went with for the character models um, during the, uh, the the stages where you control the characters. Yeah, um, and then the more detailed models for battle. Yeah, that that was always strange, but I just accepted it and got on with it and grew to love that. Um, so, it's a very interesting choice. So I'm gonna know. I'm gonna tell you something now, uh, and I'm curious what you think of this. So I'm not playing the game just vanilla as is. It is. The official Steam release, uh, mm. which uh, I believe, well, obviously it's it's modified to. I th- I did play it on PC back in the day before I got the PS One version. I understand yeah. the original PC version is not considered great because they kind of like butchered the soundtrack and some other stuff. From um, what I hear, wasn't well received. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't maybe it wasn't the best first impression, but I did play it on PS One afterwards. Just never beat it either way. But one of the things that uh, I found out about this modern PC version of the original, which has also been on, I think it's on every system, even like now you finally play original FF7 on your Switch and stuff, better mm. late than ever. One thing I found out is that there is still an active modding community for the game. Oh, um, huge, huge modding community. Yeah. Yeah. I, I and gameplay videos and it's stunning. Like what, what have you got loaded up onto yours? So uh, there's one I want to look into that, I I'll get to the one I'm do, I'm using because I feel like it's the best all around for what I'm looking for. Oh. I read they just released a 60 FPS mod. Oh damn! Okay. I'd be very curious how that looks because like the original had a very low frame rate, so I'm but I'm kind of used to that. I yeah. That, look, there are some times, and you re- registered. You you mentioned the fact that um I I do the generation animation podcast. 
there are times when a lower frame rate is actually preferable because it gives you that cinematic feel. Yeah. Um, 60 frames per second is great and all, but how many of us have got a, like, a super smooth function on our TVs and when you put a movie on and have that mode activated, it just looks awful? My parents like, had that on all the time and I, I don't know why. Oh, it's mind-numbing. It's, it's like watching The Hobbit. And yep. like nothing yep. against Peter Jackson because he made three of the greatest fantasy films of all time with the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. But what made him think that he should make an entire new trilogy that looked like it was made for TV? I do not know. I saw the first um, one high frame rate and was like, what is this? Jesus Christ. Yeah, it was fucking ugly. And like, it, it just looks like you've walked into a TV store and they've, you know, they've all got them set to the high frame rate, um, yep. settings automatically. And like, you see something like, I don't know. I, I remember once walking into a TV store and they were showing, um, what was that Steve Carroll movie where he, uh, Evan Almighty. Oh, yeah. Bruce Almighty and then Evan Almighty. They were showing Evan Almighty and, it looked like it was a fucking like TV um, comedy pilot. Uh, you know, <laughs> Shot it, on video. It, yeah, it looked awful. So I would be really interested to see how Final Fantasy VII looks at 60 frames per second, but I wouldn't necessarily be against going back to the regular frame rate if it looked weird to me yeah. because there is a cinematic quality that lower frame rate does give you. And I would argue with a game like Final Fantasy VII, frame rate is one of the least important things on, uh, on, on your mind when you're playing that game because it's all active time battles, ATB. I fucking love that term. Even now, I, I yep. miss active time battles. And at the time, I wanted to get rid of them and go to like live battles where I could just mash buttons. How little did I know as a child? Uh, the remake kind of blends them. Yeah, I do you know, I played the demo for remake and I was so so excited for remake when they announced it. You'll remember we talked about it during oh, yeah. that animation episode and I was really really hyped for it. And after playing the demo, I was just kind of a bit cold on the whole thing to the point that I never bought it. I only have it now because it was on PlayStation Plus. Right. So I, I'm going to get into that when I have the time. At the moment, I'm playing Ghost of Tsushima and absolutely adoring it. Yep. I, I managed to squeeze that in. Um, but yeah, so uh, I, I think that um, it's something that needs getting used to. And uh, I have to approach it as a new game, a, a new take, a, a reboot of, of the story that I know and love. Uh, because it does have a lot of those elements from what I can see. But yeah, the, the frame rate... I think for a game of the original Final Fantasy VII's uh, makeup, I, I think frame rate is not necessarily the most important thing, but I am very interested to see how it looks because it may look amazing. I just don't know. I'll have to look up the YouTube videos, but um, there's one that's mm. in progress that I've actually participated in a little bit. Uh, okay. I believe it's called the Echo S mod, and its big goal is to add full voice acting oh. uh, for okay. literally every character. Even like the one-line NPCs, and I believe I auditioned and got to voice one guy with a lot like a sailor on a on the ship section. Mm, but uh, I think they have a demo out that covers the whole opening portion in, in Midgar, the same portion that the uh, remake covers so far. Uh, mm. It is funny how like the 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 original. Uh, I got to the point where the first remake game ends, and I think five hours. So it's interesting how they're expanding on some of that. I I think I was 
initially worried, you know, you mentioned The Hobbit, the same idea of like stretching stuff out artificially and adding stuff that's not as good. But the remake, story-wise, actually does some smart stuff. I think the biggest thing is expanding on uh, the characters of Barrett's uh, avalanche squad, Biggs, Wedge, and Jesse. Mm, um, yeah. I don't know if you've heard about that, but Jesse's become a fan favorite. Uh, I knew that they were going to use the opportunity to expand the backstory of characters and, and really delve into the motivations of, of the group. Um, because when you have that kind of latitude to remake something, why, why not? You know? Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of those characters, like, there are sentimental favorites already, like Biggs and Wedge. Obviously, every iteration of Final Fantasy, people yep. love them because Star of Wars. the connection. Absolutely. Um, then there's Sid, you know, there's always a Sid in Final Fantasy. Yeah. They didn't, um, they don't get to, uh, it, because it's the first part it covers about half the cast. We see Cloud, Barrett, Tifa, Aerith, and a little bit of Red at the end of the remake. Uh, I mm. think Kate Sith has a cameo, but he doesn't say anything. Yeah. And, oh, they did DLC that's like a pro, uh, a prologue for Yuffie, where she's actually in Midgar before they meet her out in the overworld. Yeah, but there is, uh, no sign of Sid or, uh, Vincent yet. We need, we need, we need our Vincent. We need to get him in there as soon as possible. Like, what I love about the Vincent character as well from the original Final Fantasy is the fact that if you weren't paying attention, you could completely miss him and, yeah. He is not, he's basically like a bonus character because there's so no Yuffie, real, you can miss her. Yeah. I didn't know that you could miss Yuffie. I, I knew about Vincent because he was really tucked away there, but Yuffie, like it always felt like I, I don't know. I, I felt like she was always going to make herself known to me. Uh, I mean, so, that yeah. is very like uh, her. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, she's great. And yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to, uh, Seeing what they do with, with Red, Red Thirteen is like low key my favorite character in that oh, entire story. I remember in the I don't know how he sounds in the remake because they recast everyone, but I remember you pointing out how he had that very gentlemanly voice for one line in Advent Cro- Ch- Ch- uh, Children. He's just amazing, yeah. Like, and um, I I always love that final scene of Final Fantasy being of him with his kids just standing on top of the rocks overlooking Midgar. And it's all overgrown and like nature has reclaimed it. And he's just looking like the king of the fucking jungle. Um, and I would call him the Lion King, but he's a made up beast. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's, he's the, the Red King. Um, yeah. sounds like he should probably be a rap artist, but apparently not. Uh, but yeah, like I, I also love the fact that because he's like a genetically modified experimental creature, this could literally be hundreds of years in the future and you'd never know. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's meant to be because he has a long lifespan. But um, okay, so. so I did want to say about the modding. The big thing, that, the main thing that I'm using, uh, you can Google this. It's called the Satsuki Yatoshi mod. So I wrote down this has a lot of things packed in from other mods that are like quality of life improvements, like uh, dynamic character shadows instead of like the flat circles, uh, remastered oh. music and sound effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, one that maybe you'll, you won't like so much, but I was happy with was, uh, revamping all the character models to be more in line with like the battle versions instead of the chibis. But the, the, I think the most important thing is going back with all those pre-rendered pixelated environments and like low, you know, low frame rate FMVs and doing like a remaster and AI upscaling to make them all HD quality and like 30 frames per second. That's awesome. Yeah. And 30 frames is, is a good kind of happy medium. Where yeah, it's, it's just, not the whole 60. Exactly. It's not going to be that kind of like high uh, <laughs> TV style. It's, it's still 30 frames is kind of cinematic. It's around that 26 FPS, 24, 26 FPS. 
Can you pick and choose which mods you turn on, or is it a one one size fits all mod where you basically take what it gives you? So if we're talking just the Satsuki mod, there are actually I think two versions of it you can install because there's there is a mod manager I think called Seventh Heaven after Tifa's Bar and not a TV show, and you can mix and match mods from that and. Even I think you can include one version of the Satsuki mod in that. I just went for Satsuki for now. I kind of wish I hadn't because maybe now I can improve, include the try out the frame rate and voice acting and stuff. But whatever. The neat thing is, uh, even if you just install the standalone Satsuki mod, it has a launcher where you can like check off or or check you know on and off uh, individual aspects of it. Uh, so it cool. is it is customizable even on its own. Because the one thing that I would absolutely miss and would change the the experience for me probably more than I would want is the character models like I I've seen mods that are available and I'm sorry I don't know the name of the mods but I've there seen a them bunch. On where they are still chibi style characters but their polygon rate has been increased exponentially I've so seen that one yeah it, they look stunning like they absolutely look how you would expect them to look if they had the ability to use more polygons at yeah. that state development it kind of makes it feel um, more like a ps2 game than a ps1 one very much so yeah um but also like i i like final fantasy 8 a lot but i feel very like that it. was the point of final fantasy 8 is that look the uh the the controllable characters on the map screen are exactly the same as the ones that you get in the battle screen like yep. that's the improvement that we've made this time and you know final fantasy 7 just has that charm i, I think each of these versions of, of the game each entry into the franchise have their unique charms and for me the two things that stand out where it comes to final fantasy 7 is the chibi models where you're in the, the map screen and and uh, when you're controlling a character in the uh, environments and the second thing is materia because i don't feel like we've ever had a more satisfying and customizable system than we've had with materia where you can level those materia up uh, with a really overbuffed character and then you can use that character to basically farm these materia and then give them to your weaker characters right and, and it just it feels like since final fantasy 7 they've had too good of a grasp on the abilities and skills trees where there was never any room to experiment to the point that you could fundamentally break the battle system. Like Final Fantasy VII, if you were really clever with your materia, you could basically make your characters unkillable because they would have a, a bunch of stats and buffs uh, included in these materia, which would basically mean that they always had Phoenix Down available as a last gasp. And um, they always had uh, twice as many... Uh, because they, they would auto cast haste at the beginning of a battle, you'd get twice as many turns before the enemy, and you know all of these kind of things. Yeah. Uh, and there, I can't remember the combination, but there is essentially a combination of materia with a with one of the ultimate weapons, where you can basically just put the controller down, and it will just take care of shit for you, and you, you will never die. And if, even if you can die, you'll just be brought straight back again. Uh, it's so overpowered, and I kind of love the fact that the developers probably didn't even realize that this was possible when they released it and because of the nature of gaming on playstation one they couldn't exactly patch it nope. so it was just like well that's in there now i guess so that's the game <laughs> that's the game and it was up to the players if you wanted to abuse it you absolutely could but if you wanted to challenge yourself then you would just ignore those uh those exploits and it, it really left it down to the individual as to whether you wanted the the true 
uh, gameplay experience or whether you just wanted to blast through the story. Um, and I'll always appreciate those people that were like massively into experimenting with materia because they came up with some very interesting combinations it's, that made the game very interesting to play. It does make me think about um, a problem you might have with the remake, and maybe I'm wrong about it. It might be harder to do the material farming because there there isn't as much in the way of random encounters. They mm, they yeah. don't do the whole like you just walk in and suddenly the screen flashes and you're warped to a battle. Uh, mm. It's become a lot more of a modern convention to like you'll see preset enemies wandering yeah. on on the environments and may, sometimes you can even avoid them more like blue dragon on xbox where blue you could blue dragon an example i think the first example i can think of is chrono trigger i don't know if you played that yeah you see i never played chrono trigger Ooh, um, good one i i guess like final fantasy was enough for me at that point and uh i was just like i'm not going to fall too down far down the rabbit hole because some of these games take hundreds of hours to complete. Yeah. So I always start with Final Fantasy for my RPG fix and then kind of moved on to other stuff in other genres. But uh, yeah, Blue Dragon absolutely was the first time that I experienced anything like that where you could be very tactical in when you wanted to essentially farm XP uh, right. is what you're doing on Final Fantasy an awful lot. Uh, the, the only difference being Final Fantasy VII, I would literally just walk around in circles waiting for a cactar to have a go at me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and those fights would be over very, very quickly, but at least you got some XP for it. So, you know, that and Chocobo farming, they were kind of the things that you did when you'd explored pretty much every other avenue. Yeah. Uh, you just, like, hit that for, for some uh, time sinkage, I guess, yeah. is, is the word. Yeah. Is. I'm also going to say, like... Maybe it's just showing that I've grown as a gamer, but the game is uh, easier for me than it was in high school. I guess I'm, I'm guessing that maybe back in the day I just tried spamming attacks, and now I try to think a little bit ahead. Like I'm, mm. I'm trying to guess when like a big move will be, so I do queue up cure ahead of time and stuff like that. You know so what it is? That's probably helping. You've you've played Pokemon, right? Oh yeah. So that's basically what it is. Like Pokemon is the hardcore, and it sounds amazing to call Pokemon hardcore about anything. It's got a competitive scene. It, it's got a competitive scene, but also if you want to be truly successful with Pokemon, you need to learn what works against what enemies. And that was always something that was in the background of Final Fantasy VII, but was never really explained fully. You know, the, oh, the, the, idea, the elemental weaknesses, mental weaknesses and stuff. Now, Final Fantasy VII Remake, they make a point of pointing out during yes. the battle against the spider crab tank. Um, that it's uh, it, it's vulnerable against electricity. Now, that's something that we all intuited as we played Final Fantasy. But I think games like Pokemon definitely helped train us in recognizing those weaknesses. And then when we come back to playing Final Fantasy years later, it does feel easier. Like I remember it took me so many attempts to beat that initial boss on Final Fantasy, you know, the, the spider tank. Yeah, first big and boss. Then, yeah, and then subsequent playthroughs, I would beat it first time because obviously I'd already played it. I knew what worked, but also I'm a bit older. I'm not spamming attacks like you said. Like it's about recognizing patterns and making sure that you queue up your attacks and your healing potions and stuff so that you, uh, first of all, don't waste them, but second of all, don't end up dying. It's a very, very tactical game. And I think that's what I miss about um RPG, jrpgs especially now is the 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 time uh you know the, the the tmbs they they've all but disappeared and so there's not really a truly tactical rpg out there now 
um, because you still have to worry about moving around and dodging attacks and stuff. And it's it's not so much about taking your licks and making sure that you've planned a, a strategy that will counteract that. Have you played uh, Fire Emblem? No, no. I, I I hear great things about all these games, but I feel like I'm always so late to the party that okay. it's not worth there, getting into. I mean, there are older ones on like the 3DS and GBA and stuff that are cheap at this point. Yeah, well, uh, I've, I've got a Switch, so, you know, if, if I'm going to... Oh, you're going to three houses. Yeah, I'll probably pick up three houses. I, I had some good stuff about that, about, you know, playing as the different houses and how it alters the way that you approach uh, strategy and stuff. Yeah, and, and also um, the modern ones let you choose whether or not you have permadeath. Yeah, and, and isn't there a roguelike element to three houses as well? Like, you, you end up uh, playing as... Uh, your, your children and your children's children and stuff, or am I getting that mixed up with That's something else? That's some of the uh, the 3DS ones, and it's not so much roguelike, it's more just like they introduce a time travel element, so now you've got like their fully grown children fighting alongside them. You don't give up okay. one character to get their kids or something. Cool, I get it, yeah. Because I like the idea of roguelikes where you basically just play as generation after generation. Yeah, like, it's not like, oh, like you played, um, you know some of the characters that are from Fire Emblem and Smash Brothers, right? Uh, I, I would probably recognize them visually. But, oh, okay. Uh, I was going to say, know, I, Lucina and Krom, they're the same age in game, but she's his daughter from the future. Oh, and that's fucking awkward, isn't it? <laughs> uh, they play it pretty, pretty chill. Yeah, no, I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah, I, um... Not a big fighting game fan either. Like I, I was. I'm not either. Tech. I just love Smash Brothers. Yeah, like Smash is like a really like easy pick up and play game. I've played it a few times, um, but I, I've never really got hardcore into it. Like the closest I got to being hardcore into a fighter was Tekken back in the days of yeah. Tekken Three and Tekken Tag on uh, PlayStation Two. Classics. Or was it PlayStation One? It might have Tekken Tag PS1. was PS Two. The first three for, P- for PS One. Okay, yeah. So it's that it's that crossover period of generations. But bowling was always a lot of fun in Tekken. Oh yeah, <laughs> and and that's the first game I can remember. Wine see all the character endings. Yeah, and and that was an era where like it was all about unlocking shit as well. Like they didn't have DLC yet because the infrastructure wasn't there. So. Oh yeah, internet was in its infancy. Um, yeah. So is is there anything else do you want to bring up about Final Fantasy VII? Like memories or or thoughts on the remake or anything. I mean, I, I, I've got this one abiding memory of Final Fantasy VII. Um, when I was off school for like a week, I, I had the flu mm. and um, I wasn't feeling very well. And I basically spent an entire week just solidly playing Final Fantasy. And I got so much of that game. It's such a wonderful game when you're ill because you can just sink hours into it and there's always something new. And yeah, like it was, it was my, uh, my cure. Basically, you know, it was the thing I always went to when I was feeling ill or I had time uh, to myself or whatever. And uh, like the, the PlayStation 1 was like my first console that I had that was current, if that makes sense. Oh, like I you, first one you master- had when it was still being being made. Yeah, like I had a Master System, but that was, I got the Master System when the SNES was a big thing. And the Genesis. And got, or Mega Drive. Was, no, I never got the Mega Drive. Never no, I'm just saying Mega- that was that the the Mega Drive was the same time uh, being current as this SNES. I forgot to say. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. No. So yeah, I I so when the when it was the uh, the the Mega Drive and, and SNES generation, then I I had the Master System, and then I had a SNES just as the PlayStation One was coming out. And I love those systems. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Like California Games is one of the most maddening and confusing titles <laughs> I've ever played. But god damn it, I played that a lot. 
Um, and then Snares, it was all about Mario All-Stars. Oh, yeah. Uh, I still I don't have that cartridge anymore. I found, because me and my sister both got the Mario All-Stars um, set of, of Snares's, so it came with... I want to say it's on the uh, Switch SNES app. So they have a version of it, but I think it's the Wii release, uh, which there was something about it that wasn't quite the same. Maybe they didn't pack in Mario World because our version oh, was no, Mario no, Wii. yeah. The, originally, the game was released individually, and then they did a pack in a combo version with the SNES later. That's right. Um, so we've got one copy of Mario World Plus All Stars, and my sister has it, which is fine because I bought myself a um, a, a Raspberry Pi free nice. and a a pie case that looks like a SNES and basically downloaded all the games I would ever want to play on it. I, um, I can't I, afford a, a dedicated system like the Raspberry, but I got this thing called the, uh, the backbone, which is a, con- a controller shell for the iPhone and found a workaround instead of, you know, doing the whole jailbreaking thing. And now I've got a, uh, uh, I've got RetroArch set up, which plays most emulators. Yeah. So I, I have RetroArch um, built in as, as part of uh, RetroPie, um, which is the, the OS that you can run on, on Raspberry Pi yeah. to run that kind of stuff. And, um, for legal reasons, I will say I, I have the cartridges for all of the rooms yes, that I don't Yes. Have. Many, many cartridges and, yes, and discs so and so on. Cartridges. Or at least I had the cartridges. So I paid my money to Nintendo. So yep, you have had their flesh. So I, I downloaded all of the All Stars and um, and Mario World and all that kind of stuff and uh, kind of started going through that. But the motherfuckers, nice. the, and sorry for the language, I I've forgotten if uh, if we can be. Oh, swearing's fine. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. So anyway, they um, the people that I bought the Raspberry Pi from, they gave me a power supply which was woefully inadequate. So I kept getting the lightning bolt of doom in the top right hand corner. So half uh-huh. my games just ran at such slow frame rates that you might as well be drawing them frame by frame. Did you manage to get a replacement? Uh, I bought a replacement from an official Raspberry Pi supplier and it's been working perfectly ever since. So, yeah. But yeah, Final Fantasy VII is a wonderful game. Um, it is uh, my penicillin, if you will, along with chicken noodle soup. Do you, do you revisit it every now and then? I never have, but I still have my original set of discs and a PlayStation 2 that can play them. Nice. And I keep threatening myself with revisiting it, but I'm yeah. also tempted to do what you did which is to get the pc version on steam it's cheap. and to get the old uh, get the old um mods in there so yeah, yeah, yeah. I look if you if you do get the steam release then just look up each of the mods and kind of pick and choose the ones that appeal to you and remember with a lot of them you can uh, adjust individual factors so you don't have to replace the character models for example which is awesome because that's the one thing that I I, I will upres them for sure. But oh yeah, I certainly wouldn't want to replace the chibi goodness of uh, Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> so uh, that's that's my opening media, and Dave picked something that uh, I have zero exposure to, but I'm certainly aware of its popularity. So I believe it is Dexter New Blood. I might still be a monster, but I'm an evolving monster. Yeah, that's right. Um, so after about a decade of being off the air, they decided that they were going to bring back Dexter. And uh, it was a limited edition miniseries, 10 episodes called Dexter New Blood. This discussion will probably go into spoilers a yeah. little bit for those that don't want to know. Then I'm okay probably- with being spoiled, but if you are, have not seen New Blood yet, or Dexter probably, uh, and you intend to, then tune out, please. Skip ahead. But I, 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 I do want to say... Something that I was curious about regarding New Blood, since they kind of had a chance to keep going before it ended, I know Dexter was regarded as a great show with a bad ending by most people. 
Yeah, um, I, I think that Dexter is one of those shows that was, it was at the time really, really popular and it varied in quality in the same way that uh, The Walking Dead did. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, you know, it starts off really, really strong. Then they have a dodgy season. Then they have another season, which people think is brilliant. And then it kind of like tails off again. Uh, I think it's more the fact that they set such impossibly high standards for themselves at the get go that people were disappointed that they couldn't maintain it. And oh, that's it started why, like, like super strong. And then, yeah, I think so personally. Now, my opinions are my own and won't necessarily tally with the popular opinion or the uh you know the the majority opinion on on things so uh take all of these opinions with a grain of salt but i was never not uh entertained by dexter the entirety of the original run i always had fun watching it even if i knew that it wasn't necessarily the best season or the best set of stories i was always entertained the one thing that i always wished was that the ending was a little bit more uh not final but Certainly, I, I I would have liked a, an ending to the original show that felt a little more permanent. And a little oh, bit did it more... feel kind of open ended? Uh, yeah, yeah, it left it open ended in as much as um, Dexter basically uh, in in the final couple of episodes, his sister dies, um, and the net is closing in on him being found out as a serial killer. And so he basically takes her body, puts it on his boat and sails into the middle of a hurricane, um, which is uh, approaching Miami. And everybody assumes that he's dead and that um, they close the case. They pin it all on uh, another policeman that died a couple of seasons previously. Um, they don't decide not to reopen the case. And he's just um, announced as being um, kind of missing in action and presumed dead. Yeah. And then it's shown he's hiding somewhere, right? That's right. So the final scene is him sitting in a cabin and he kind of looks up at the camera knowingly and that's your final scene of the season. And then 10 years pass and it turns out that uh, he's been living in different rural and, and far out communities and he's currently in a community in upstate New York and it's bitterly cold and everyone knows everyone else's name. It's like Cheers but in a, in a town. And uh, it kind of picks up from there. He's He's got himself a new identity. Uh, he's going out with the town sheriff, which you would think would be a dodgy thing to do if you're a serial killer, but there you go. And uh, it brings back a couple of characters. One of the things that people were confused about was the fact that Jennifer Carpenter, who was for a time married to Michael C. Hall while they were making Dexter, um, she was announced as coming back, even though uh, we all knew that she had died in the original show. So we were wondering, okay, so how's that going to work? And a lot of us guessed, correctly, that she was going to be kind of a figment of his imagination. Yeah, it's usually flashbacks or hallucinations. So it's mainly hallucinations. There's not many flashbacks in this show, uh, although there is one that stars John Lithgow, which is why he was announced for the series, because he actually came back to reprise his role as the Trinity Killer for like one f- flashback scene. Nice. Like John um, Lithgow. He's a great actor, really, really great. He flip-flops between serious and comedic roles, and I love that he's able to do both of them as well as he does. Right. Um, so he was a chilling serial killer, but also he's the dad from uh, Third Rock from the Sun, and he's hilarious. He's the king in Shrek. <laughs> and Shrek, and he was also in Harry and the Hendersons, which is one of my favourite uh, kids' movies. Oh, I've never seen that, but I forget. I, yeah, right, he's the dad in that, right? 
That's right, yeah. It's got a really lovely through line, a great story about uh, father and son relationships. It's just a wonderful, heartwarming story. And I'll it's check funny. it out. Definitely worth checking out. Let me know what you think when you do. Um, but yeah, so Jennifer, she, she comes back as uh, Dexter's dark passenger, quote unquote. One of the mechanics of the original show was that um, he had... And and this comes from the books as well. Uh, I I initially read Dexter as a book by. Oh wait, Jeff is it based Lind- on a book series? Based on a book series. Didn't and know it's a that. Series, and I would absolutely recommend that you check that out if you have a literary side and you enjoy reading. Okay. Uh, so they based the original show on the book series, and then they kind of spun off in a Game of Thrones type of way and just did their own thing because um, there wasn't any more seri- like uh, there wasn't any more material to adapt. So they decided they were going to do their own thing. So the Dark Passenger in the original uh, series was a uh, an imaginary version of his adoptive father mm. who was a policeman in the Miami metro and he recognized that Dexter had this darkness to him and rather than putting him in a in a, in a you know a madhouse or therapy and trying to get it out of him he decided the best way to deal with it would be to channel all of that darkness um into um tracking down people that have gotten away with crimes and making them pay for their crimes right so the the real hook of the original dexter was he's a serial killer but he only murders people who deserve it yeah so he, he goes after other killers and like blind people right. he's got a yeah, code Serial killers, rapists, uh, pedophiles, all those kind of things. Yeah, worst of the worst. Yeah, and, and his code is that he needs 100% proof of that person's guilt before he's allowed to act. Makes sense. So, yeah, so Harry is his dark passenger in those series. In Dexter New Blood, his dark passenger has transformed into uh, in, into his sister, Deborah, played played by Jennifer. And so that was a really imaginative way of getting her back into the series, as well as mitigating the fact that I think possibly the actor that played Harry might not be with us anymore. I'm not 100% sure. I'll look at that. Uh, but uh, certainly I, I love the fact that they decided to uh, to just bring Jennifer back in that role. Other than that, there's only one other character that comes back from the original show. There are photographs of other characters who didn't make it <laughs> through the original okay. series. Oh, um. Harry's Harry's actor is alive, James Remar. Oh, he is. So they just either decided not to bring him back or he didn't want to come back yeah. or just didn't fit for this show. Okay, I'm glad that he's still with us, though, because uh, you, you never like him. Actually, well. he was in Sex in the City, The Mirror on 34th Street. I mean, he's, had, he's had like a pro. He's in The Warriors. Like, okay. very prolific actor. I also, uh, not a not his highlight, but I know him as Raiden, or Raiden in Mortal Kombat Annihilation. <laughs> Replacing Christopher oh, Lambert. Christ, was he really? He was the replacement Raiden. Oh, man. I, he might be a step up from Lambert, actually, now that I think about <laughs> it. Yeah, Christoph Lambert, probably uh, not as good an actor as... Uh, James Remar. Yeah, James Remar. I think he's, he's, a, he's a step up. So yeah. anyway, it was. I, I was really excited when I heard that they were bringing this show back because I thought, oh, great, more Dexter, and maybe we can get an ending which is more satisfying for everyone and, and we can have a better discourse about that show after the fact. Um, spoilers, not an ending that everyone found satisfying. Uh, <laughs> and I myself, while I found it satisfying for a number of reasons, I 
do feel like there was a better way of ending it. And this very much fits into the uh, the Eric Morecambe, I played all the right notes, just not necessarily in the right order way of looking at things, which is that they had all of the ingredients there and a lot of the actions still took place, but with the wrong motivations and setup. Hmm. And I really wish that... I mean, uh, Do I want to spoil the fact that... You can spoil stuff. Okay, so Dexter does not make it to the end of this show. Okay, um, so yeah, yeah, that that's one that's one way to wrap things up is to put a bow on your on your character. It does wrap it up, um, but what they do during the show and the whole reason why it's called New Blood is because they reintroduce his son uh, Harrison, and his son Harrison has got his own dark passenger as a result of when he was a little baby, basically seeing his mother murdered by the Trinity Killer played by John Lithgow. Mm. So. All of this time, I'm thinking to myself, there's two things that probably need to happen and would make for a very satisfying and sensible way of wrapping this up. The first thing is, I think they need to bring back James Lithgow and he needs to be Harrison's dark passenger. He needs to be that devil on his shoulder telling him to do this, do that, do the other. The other thing that I thought was absolutely necessary was Harrison needs to be the one that kills Dexter. Now, the way that they do it, it's kind of like Dexter's like, you have to take the safety off the gun. It's okay. Do what you have to do kind of thing. I feel like the better way of doing it would have been for Dexter to teach Harrison the code. And then because of the events of this series, Dexter kind of goes off the reservation. He doesn't follow the code on every kill that he commits. Huh. And for me, the the way that they should have wrapped this up would have been for Harrison to take control of the situation and say dad i love you but you've broken the code and you're no you're you're just as bad as the people that you were killing and i have to do this and to have harrison shoot him and and, and ultimately kill dexter and that would have been kind of like the the squaring of that circle it would have completed the story in in a lovely uh in a lovely way uh, in a lovely horrible way i should say um and then they could have kind of kicked on and made Harrison like the focus of a new series if they wanted to go there. As it is, he he is the implement of his father's downfall. Right. But it's not because he's broken the code. It's more because he's, the, the, the net has tightened so tightly on Dexter that he he is going to be caught. And the only way to get out of it at this point is for him to die. And so he almost he almost uses Harrison as a get out clause, which doesn't feel that satisfying because it feels like Dexter, even though it's to the same end and he still dies, he's he's almost escaping justice in a way. Right. But that's serving time. By dying on his own terms. Whereas if Harrison had done it and and it was because Dexter couldn't recognise what he'd become it would have felt like he was actually paying for his crimes and, and, you know, but as it is Dexter, he's, he's at peace with it. And that kind of, it lets him off too easily, you Mm. know? So that's kind of where we are, but there are, there are so many cool little things that I love about this show. There's Um, still, so there's still part, like some genuine positives. There are some positives. Um, I, I love a lot of the visuals. I love the fact that they make references to the opening credits of the original show where um dexter is always cooking his breakfast so he always would um cook 
like a, a slice of, uh, of of bacon or ham or something with a couple of eggs. And there's a reference right at the beginning of the show where he's cooking his breakfast and it's it's that breakfast, but he's cooking it in a slightly different way. So there's there's this scene where Dexter cooks breakfast for his son and um, they've had a bit of an argument. And as a gesture of making up, he pushes the hot sauce across the table to his son, who then just picks it up and starts just slapping it on top of the, the meal in a very kind of haphazard way, very much like the opening titles. Oh. Um, speaking of opening titles, every episode has its own name, which is fairly common these days. That's not something that I'm, I'm going to lord. But what I am going to lord is the fact that the uh, the way that they visually integrate those titles into the opening of every episode is really cool and really interesting. Um, like you, you have um, an episode where uh, Dexter is driving um, through the snow and the title is represented by ice in the road. And as he drives past it, the snow kind of scatters and covers up the title. So, Oh, it, it's like visually implemented into the, yeah. the shot. Yeah, yeah. And it's like uh, there, there's another one, um, like, for example, um, he would be in the bathroom and the title would be written in the mirror uh, where the steam has collected and then, like, the, the mirror is wiped and, and the, it all kind of disappears. That's neat. Uh, Really, really cool. And this visual style is implemented all over the place. Like the actual logo for Dexter New Blood is, um, Dexter New Blood is written in ice and Dexter is full of blood. And the new blood underneath, which is meant to represent his son Harrison, the blood starts dripping onto it in the first episode. Then in the second episode, there's a little bit more blood in, in the new blood a little bit less blood in Dexter. By the end of the final episode, Dexter is completely clear uh, clear ice and new blood is saturated with blood. Oh, so to it, mark the transition. Exactly. It represents that passing of the torch from father to son. Um, just honestly, there are so many little visual flourishes. The end credits are always specific to an event in that episode. So whether it be um the the tail lights of a car leaving like a, a light trail or newspaper cuttings or um i don't know one of, of a, a dozen different things uh it, it just keeps it super interesting and every episode you feel like someone has worked really hard to make every episode unique and it's not just um top and tail it with the same old intro and outro uh like the original show was like that's, that's one of the things about um, TV shows of the day and, and a lot of TV shows now is that although the, the the important stuff in the middle is unique, the beginning and ending title sequences are normally copy and paste. And I just like it when, especially in like a limited series, they take the time to make the opening and closing of every episode unique as well because it just shows that extra little bit of craft and care that you don't get in every TV show out there. So... Yeah, there, there are some storytelling faux pas. There's some stuff that people won't like, but I think that there's a lot of content in this show which is really good and worth checking out. And um, I had a lot of fun watching it. And I'm, so, I'm hoping they leave it where it lay here now. Yeah, yeah. It looks like it's gotten a decent reception overall, though I guess the ending did also draw some, some ire. Uh, but... I'm looking at the cast and there's other talented people like Clancy Brown. I love Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown is brilliant in this as well. Um, we he, talked about him when uh, we talked about Detroit Becoming Humans. I'm like, he's a highlight of that. I forgot that he was in that. 
Uh, and I have that game. I really need to play it. It's it's the curse of PlayStation Plus. You get all these great games. Yeah, and yeah. Play- <laughs> Clancy Brown has been amazing for years. Like obviously he was the Kurgan in uh, in Highlander, and um, he is a menacing presence in this show as well. Uh, he is wonderful. Really, it's, really wonderful. I, well, he's versatile because he's when in live action he's often gets very menacing villainous roles, and then he's freaking Mister Krabs. He is so talented that he can like there are times during this show where he feels like a really lovely jovial genuine guy and there are other times where he makes your skin crawl and the genius of it is that he doesn't do much it's not like he's a mustache twirling villain you know like no it's just it's all him it's just little subtle things that he does where you suddenly get this feeling in your gut where you're like i don't trust this guy you know and there's a lovely turn about third or fourth episode in where they suddenly just make you very aware that this guy should not be trusted. Um, and it's, it's a brilliant turn. It really is. But I yeah, will have to discover that for goal. myself because I will, I think I need to, uh, give Deadshot a watch, especially since you've been saying like it's, it may not be, it may be less, the fact that it's kind of like an up and down experience, but it's, it's Definitely. like, it's less like, oh, it sucks and more just they reach such a height early on that it's hard to keep that up. Yeah, I, I think personally for me, I can't remember a series of that where it was unbearable. I, I always enjoyed watching it. Sometimes they would really stretch uh, Dexter getting away with stuff. Right. Uh, where it would literally just be kind of some Deus Ex Machina bullshit would, would pop up that would save his hide. But at the same time, like, that is kind of believable because I don't think that there's any serial killer out there that is smart enough to outwit the police for that long without a lot of luck. So, you know, he gets his share of luck and, uh, yeah, it's, I, I, I do definitely recommend checking out the original Dexter. And then if you enjoy that, then new blood is uh, a nice, uh, revisit in the same way that, and, and I'm not saying that the quality of these shows is, is similar because I think that Deadwood is much superior in terms of overall quality. Yeah, I've heard but fewer complaints about Deadwood. Deadwood, um, there's nothing wrong with Deadwood. The problem for Deadwood was that it was cancelled by the network without being able to give a proper ending. The actual show itself is two seasons of just perfection. It really is. Like I genuinely do believe that. I came to it very, very late in the piece. And I watched the entire two seasons plus the, uh, the, the revisit, the movie that they made, uh, only a few years ago, which is meant to serve as a bookend to. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask if they got to do a new blood kind of thing. Yeah, they did. Um, and I enjoyed it, but you could tell that like there were a few actors that couldn't come back. There were some stories for characters where they, they came to an end, which I think some people were probably unhappy about. But again, you can't be all things to all people. You are going to upset some people when you give yeah. an infinity. I'm looking at the cast and Powers Booth was among those. He died before the last season or the movie happened. Yeah, and he was a brilliant character in Deadwood. Like, genuinely hateable. Um, oh, and Jeffrey Jones is still alive, but his career is very dead. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I really enjoy Deadwood. Um, it benefits from being a lot shorter than Dexter. So it doesn't have that. Um, the longer you go on, the more likely you are to have a bit of a dud. But yeah, so I, I would recommend uh, checking out Dexter, and, and definitely if you're in the mood for some uh, sweary uh, cowboys, then Deadwood Ooh. is uh, a, a very, very fun show. I've never heard a show use the term cocksucker more. <laughs> Genuinely, 
Like they use that word like it's like. Oh, you say out. genuinely. So it must be like a very gay centric show. Very, very progressive. You would have thought so. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't think of Cowboy Era as progressive. No, no. But Timothy Oliphant is brilliant in that show. So, uh, you know, I, I yeah, I, I can't speak highly enough about Deadwood. I, I think it's amazing. But Nice. So definitely recommend Deadwood and still someone recommend uh, Dexter and New Blood. I would. Oh, dear, pardon me. Mm. I took a drink and it's gone down the wrong way. Oh, no. I, I would would definitely recommend um checking out dexter it's not going to be for everyone but if you like the first season then you're definitely going to want to stick with it to see what they do in later shows very cool uh so are you ready to get to the main topic i think there's no better time oh this is going to be fun merry merry christmas don't change kids to with us stay a little jesus so I've said this before, but sometimes with the topics of certain episodes, I feel less like discussing something a lot of our audience is probably very familiar with and more like picking something obscure but good or at least interesting and off kilter. Uh, I think the back-to-back episodes a few years ago where Chris Wade picked Little Nemo and I picked Dragon Hunters, that was like a theme I had, like let's pick something we like that how many people have seen that's good examples uh, i think ben reynolds being on the show both uh, oh no his, his uh first time was voltron which pretty well known but then he picked record of lotus war and isoken which are you know respected anime but maybe not the cream of the crop for in terms of popularity but those were both fun watches today we have one i've been meaning to properly cover on the show since i first watched it on christmas day of 2019 and it left an impression on me that being the 1989 French thriller film, uh, and it's a coin toss whether I'm going to pronounce this right, 3615 Code Pere Noel, or Dial Code Santa Claus, or Deadly Games, or Game Over, or Hide and Freak. Yeah, that first one was the actual original French title. In terms of foreign distribution, it's gotten a lot of different titles through the years. Like, um, I think the Blu-ray that I have is Dial Code Santa Claus, and the streaming release is Deadly Games. It's very confusing. Now... Uh, this movie was directed and written in 1989 by a man named René Manzur and neither made a big splash in its native country or France, kind of came and went, uh, and it didn't get proper worldwide distribution until much more recently in the late 2010s. There's an organization called the American Genre Film Archive, who is one of several groups that's dedicated to seeking out, preserving, and redistributing obscure genre films worldwide. Basically, they discovered this movie, went holy shit, and began showing it at film festivals, which has led to it get getting proper distribution. It's been made available to stream in the U.S. on both Amazon Prime and the Horror Service Shutter, which is how I first saw it because I heard about it on um, a podcast I like called Two Guys in a Chainsaw, where it's from very casual summary and reviews of various horror movies by these two jovial guys. Highly recommend them. And it also has a Blu-ray and 4K combo disc release through the company Vinegar Syndrome, who kind of has a similar goal as American Genre in terms of preserving these weird, like, little films. Uh, this is the first disc purchase I've made, including a 4K disc, despite not having a 4K TV. But because there's no way to get the Blu-ray individually, because after seeing this, I was like, yeah, I think I need this in my collection. This is uh, something else. So, Dave, I'm guessing you had never heard of this until I said we should watch it. Yeah, I mean, I, it's unusual for me to have heard of um, relatively unknown horror movies ahead of time but i feel like this one isn't even relatively unknown i feel like this is like a, a deep cut to end all deep cuts um, <laughs> i love i love making deep cuts though even on the show because 
you know, sometimes I'm, I, we like to open up possibilities of people who are like, wait, what is this? And if it sounds like your kind of thing, it might be. But uh, I'm excited to have this conversation with you because I, I'm coming from the perspective. I asked you before we started recording, like, uh, so what do you think? And I'm like, I'm from the perspective of someone who really likes this. And you had a neat, neat summary, which is like, I think it's one of the best bad movies I've ever seen. Absolutely it is. Yeah, like there's there's a lot to like about this movie. There's a lot that is really badly done. Um, but like, I I just, I, I gave this, I'm on Letterboxd and I gave this a solid six out of 10, which cool. doesn't sound massively impressive, but you have to remember, I don't like giving high scores unless I really, really think that it's both enjoyable and like an excellent movie. Now... I had a lot of fun watching this film. I think that it has got a lot of um, influence from other movies. Uh, I, I know straight away, like when that music kicked in, that they were doing an Eye of the Tiger ripoff. <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah, that I, that's yeah. in my notes. Um, so that he's got this whole predator thing going on as well, where he ends up inadvertently, I might add, covered in like this clay-like mud. Oh, um, yeah. But like, there's definitely like a predator vibe, uh, Home Alone slash Predator, because he's setting all these traps up, and they're kind of okay. homemade traps. But- I want to bring this up because this is something that's been kind of contentious about. This movie came out a year before Home Alone, and it, uh, it the director is convinced that uh, I think John Hughes wrote it. He is personally convinced that John Hughes heard about this movie and maybe not ripped it off, but was it influenced by it? And apparently, there was some proof that. Uh, Hughes was vacationing in Europe when this came out, so that wouldn't surprise me. It's entirely yeah. possible that that this we wouldn't have Home Alone without this. And well, to be fair, they are very okay. different movies. I can only say thank you then for for them uh, influencing Home Alone in such a way. Yeah, that's another good. That's um, a good movie. And it also, it's a dude with like messy hair and a scraggy scraggy beard. Um, being absolutely tortured by a young boy, so it, it shares more than just the uh, the home traps. I I love how just random and big this mansion is. Um, yeah, I, yeah, it's a great setting for for this story. So I'm gonna say let, let's kind of. I took notes. Let's try again. Go through this movie chronologically. I took a bunch sure. of notes, and you can you can bring up stuff as well. But I do think this has one of the most French openings I've ever seen. French cinema, where it's like a cheery, calm snow globe of the Eiffel Tower and happy, you know, twinkly Christmas music plays, and then a garbage truck just runs it over. Like, yeah. no, this is what we think of your childish delight. You know, it's kind up. of a good representation of how this movie starts versus what it becomes. Mm, definitely, definitely. I, I can only imagine watching the first act of this not knowing anything, and then when the ball drops, it drops hard. Like, I, I feel like they're fairly obvious with who the villain of the piece is going to yes, be. Yes, Immediately, like, he wants to play snowball fight with the kids, and they run off, and he's just kind of being weird. And you don't know if it's because he's socially withdrawn or because he's a little bit of a pedo or, or what. But like, I def- love this villain because... I, let me find my notes of it. It's interesting because I, w- I want to give credit to the actor, a uh, French actor named Patrick Florsheim, because he doesn't say that much, but there's some great facial acting from him in terms of looking sinister or even looking sympathetic at points. 
but we get no proper backstory or motivation on him. We don't see his living conditions. We don't get, like, it's clear that he has probably some sort of mental issues, but we don't know what. And we don't even get his name. He is only credited as Santa. Uh, we main thing we get is to establish just clues that he is not of, of rational mind. Yeah. And I, I really love his performance. And I think that portraying him in the way that they do in this movie, not giving you a backstory, not giving you any real logical reasons to why he's gone off, except for the fact that he's fired and he wants revenge. I, I think that's really effective. Cause sometimes I, I think we, we tread too far one side of the line or the other where like, we're like, okay, so here's the murderer and here's their justification. And look at Don't Breathe if you want to uh, see how to muddy the water sufficiently. Oh, I need to see the, that. I tell you what, when they uh, announced Don't Breathe Part 2, there was a lot of people that were confused as to whether the uh, the the, um, the main character who uh, is portrayed by an actor whose name I can't remember right is it now. Stephen Lang? Stephen Lang, yes, thank you. Um, there were people that were convinced that he was the hero of the piece in Don't Breathe 2. And I'm just like... Please, have you not seen the original Don't Breathe? There is nothing heroic about that character. He cannot be redeemed. And that's because they try to give him a tragic backstory that somewhat justifies in his own mind why he's doing what he's doing during this film. The thing with this movie is that they're like, no, we're not going to give you any justification for why he's doing it. He just wants revenge, and he's a psychopath. Yeah, and, and we'll get to it. I don't. By the end, you're not even sure what his endgame is. Because, yeah. you know, we, there is a point where he could, he has the hero, he could kill him, and he does something out of left field. Yeah, that was very confusing to me. I like it because it injects this extra level of... What the fuck? Uh, yeah, like, I, I was, I wasn't, it's, it's not, um, What's the word I'm looking for here? This, this just level of, uh, unsure, unsure. Oh my god, I can't talk. Unsureness. Um, what it, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank too, but I get what you're saying. Like, I, I do not know at that point what his motivations are. I'm very unsure about them, and it's extremely confusing. And that's very effective when you've got this. I wouldn't call him a force of nature. He's not like a Michael Myers or a Jason Voorhees. No, he's not impervious, but he's, he's pretty determined. Yeah, and the thing is, he's preying on an old man that can't see very well and uh, has a blood sugar issue, yeah. and uh, and a young kid. Who, yeah, so he kind of has an advantage from the start. Um, exactly. But I I do love that. Like you, I think you can take away multiple like uh, evaluations or interpretations of what this deal this deal is because I think you could watch that opening thing with him trying to join in the snowball because it starts with him just walking in and he just has a very normal wholesome like oh that's that's nice look. And then, yeah, it's just very weird. This, like, 40-year-old guy tries to join in, and they just, they, they all go, like, oh, that's not part of the game. They just move all, move along. And you see him looking dejected, like, what happened? What'd I do? And you could be like, is this guy a pedo? Is this guy a man-child? Is this, like, we don't know. And I, I think that's actually, that adds to his menace later on. Yeah, because, again, there's there's this um, unsureness <laughs> I don't think what the fucking word would be um, uh, about uh, what his motivations are. And you, you don't know what's wrong with him. Like you said, like, is he uh, is is he more childlike in mind? Um, but then you get to a point where he just loses his temper and starts murdering people. And you're like, that's not childlike. That's nope, he's legit dangerous. Uh, yeah. But so we, we after. So, yeah, our first scene is meeting the 
the the villain. And then let's get to our next scene is this crazy introduction to, I'm going to say four characters. We have our main character, Thomas, this little nine-year-old rich kid, his really cute dog, JR, who he like has like a bunk bed, like fighter plane with the most rockin' eighties mullet. Uh, it's a glorious mullet. Props that to Thomas. I, I feel like that's past the point of a mullet. Like the length in the back is disproportionate to the business up front. And I'm just wondering whether there is a, um, internationally agreed standard for how long a mullet can be before it's just uh, long hair. Yeah. I feel like it's just long hair at this point. Yep, and the fourth one-scene character, uh, Bargain Bin Tom Waits singing Totally Not Eye of the Tiger. It's so funny because it's the exact same timing with the dun-dun-dun, but they just change the the notes so it's like dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, like just so they don't get sued. That's exactly it. It, And he's also singing in English these crazy lyrics like it's it's like – Christmas, show me the way to the other side. And I can totally imagine you being hit with this stuff. We're not even three inches of the movie, and you were probably just like, what the hell has John got me watching? Absolutely. Um, but I was enjoying the ride. I really was. Yes. Like, like the fact that they they were so clearly um, referencing Rambo. And yeah, he is Rambo role-playing. And it makes sense that this is the era of like Stallone and Schwarzenegger at their peak, and they were big mm-hmm. overseas as well. But it also kind of ties into the ending where... Because I, I, I do feel this movie has a lot of smart touches to it in terms of foreshadowing and payoffs. And so one thing is... So Tommy is... Now, let's make it clear. He is part of a rich family. His mom is this uh, department store exec. And so they have this incredible estate with this mansion and he's got a bunch of, you know, he's got toys, he's got a cool room, he's got, he's able to like modify the room to have like speakers playing music and war sounds and trap doors to, with nets to throw JR in. Um, as well, like his mother says, please stop putting holes in the parquet (laughs) flooring. Like this place is like Gouda. I mean, the translation was Swiss cheese, but I mean, it's Gouda. And I'm just like, who lets their kid dig that many holes in their walls and and pull up the flooring and put trap doors in there? And I'm already seeing where this movie's going because he's got a house full of traps. Exactly, yeah. But there's also, there's also not just traps. Um, I didn't realize it until I rewatched, but like there's that part where he's sneaking alongside a wall as if he's on a ledge. It zooms out to show he's actually like in a really safe area. But then that's mm. called back when he has to do it for real. And I think that's one of my favorite moments, uh, which we'll get to. And he's great. And, and also it shows that he's actually quite a sensible lad in that he's just using his imagination yeah. in that sense. I, just to I want to give this movie props. I feel like it would have been so easy to make him to make him seem like a spoiled brat the whole movie. But there's stuff that goes on later on that shows this like genuine childish sweet nature to him about like – wanting to give gives back, wanting to give them give them to Santa and help out that sort of stuff. Despite being rich, he's not really the greedy type. And he still believes yeah. in in magic and aliens and all sorts of stuff. So there are pains to point out that while he is something of a child genius, like electronics and things like that, um, that he still has that childish nature and that he still believes in Santa. And one of the best examples of a parent telling their kid that Santa does exist that I have ever seen in movies. Is it the grandfather? No, no, it's the mum where she says, remember, um, your, your, to your friend, Santa doesn't exist because he doesn't believe in him. Yeah. Because he's a good boy. But you believe in Santa and you've been a good boy. So to you, he does exist. And it's just kind of like, I'm not going to tell you in so many words that he doesn't exist. But if you listen to what I'm saying carefully, eventually, the lines. 
understand. Yeah, exactly. Like it's it, it's a really softly, softly approach. I really love it. I think it's a great way of tackling that subject. Mom, is is Santa real? Well, he's real to you because you yeah. are present this year. You know, I, I like the whole intros like breakfast scene because it it does a good job of setting up the family dynamic. Like you know, his mom and grandpa and him are on good terms. There's that he, like when she leaves, he has that great like secret handshake. Uh, that's a cute oh, touch. Yeah. Um, it went a bit slow. It was almost like she was struggling to remember what came next. Take 56, do it again. Um, but <laughs> also, a set, again, establishing stuff that the grandpa is virtually blind. We get some point of view shots and it's just a big blur. Yeah. So it's kind of hint that he can't be the most helpful when shit hits the fan. And they don't go overboard on it, but there is that moment where they say kind of like just like his father and his face goes solemn. So it kind of hints that like she's probably a widow and, and the dad was a major loss, whatever happened to him. Yeah, it's, you know, there's a lot about this movie which is really solidly done and well written. Like that scene that you've just mentioned with the, the father being mentioned, there's no need to go into the entire backstory of what happened to him. You just yeah, need to know he's not around anymore and they're sad about it. Um, yeah. And then references him one more time when they're in that secret room and he says, well, you know, this is where my dad's toys are and where his dad's dad's toys were. That's the craziest um, part of the movie to me, that room. <laughs> Yeah, like we have a secret room and it's like a boys club and this is one day, this is going to be where my toys go. And like, which of you motherfuckers had a totem pole as a kid? Come on. Like, I mean, they were rich. They could have... Uh, rich motherfuckers. Yeah, <laughs> it's too much money. It's far too much money. Spend on frivolous uh, things like totem poles. Um, yeah. So yeah, we get... I, we get I, there's something I want to I want to detail. So after this, we get the scene with him and his friend Pilou, who they're having arguments because Pilou is wait is you know over believing in Santa and like, and so I want to ask you about: Are you aware of the Minitel network? No, no. Like I get what it was. I understand the idea behind it, but I don't think it was ever something that came to the UK, and I don't think it's anything that we were ever made aware of over here. Because yeah, I I looked up the wiki aware. for this. Uh, this Minitel was, and this definitely helps date this movie, but it's also kind of charming, and it also. There is one relevant thing to it, so I'll get to. Minitel was an early form of online communication similar to the internet that was prevalent in France throughout the 80s. You could use computers if you were, you know, you know, set up enough like Thomas says, but it was it had a lot of terminals like an ATM or a phone booth throughout uh, the country. And you could ha- set up an account, like you, you do paid time on it, and it had a lot of functions that we still use on the web today, like email, online shopping, ticket buying, chat, stocks, and all sort of that. And uh, I think it had stuff similar to BBS communities and chat rooms. And because of that, you could argue that because of what happens here, this movie is one of the earliest examples in media of online stranger danger. Yeah, I hadn't even considered that, but you're right. Like, you've got that entire scene where they're talking to who they think is Santa, and yeah. it could literally be anyone. Like, And... and to this day, like we don't know who that was, whether it was somebody that was paid by Minitel to pretend to be Santa, much oh, in no, the same no, way. No, 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 it was it was our villain. As it pans out, that's who he who was talking. Do you think? I'm pretty sure it's what it's meant to be, and that's you know it's because Thomas. That's what gives him the hint where uh, he says, "Like I gave my list to my mom. She works at this department store, and that's what gives him the idea to sneak into it yeah. later." But then the only reason that he knows about that is because she fires him on the spot for slapping that little girl. <laughs> well, we'll get that to that. He's still perfectly happy. Um, he goes up to the personnel office and he overhears the guy in the personnel office saying that the warehouse have got the order for her kids' presents. 
So he goes down and essentially stows away, and that's the only reason that he's able to find where Thomas lives. Okay, and like, it could it could be that's that, just not edited as well. But I I took that it was it was our villain. I mean, it could easily be, but I just uh, I I think that if they're going to do it like that, then there's no need for him finding out the way that he did by going to the personnel office. That does make it redundant. Yeah, yeah, because he he walks out the moment he hears enough. And yep. then strangles the guy that ran that Oof. took the down. That's the first like things getting violent. Um, so I think we're getting close to. But I do want to talk about uh, before we get into our our the bulk of the movie. Uh, can we talk about the model mansion that we get for certain shots for? Because I kind of love it. It's very nicely done. Um, I I think it's something very much of its era. It doesn't stand up to today's standards at all. But then no, I but it looks cool. It does look cool. It doesn't look it has real, that. but it looks like a lot of work went into it, and so you still appreciate these shots. It actually, maybe you'll, maybe you'll agree with this, maybe you won't. It gave me vibes of the Tim Burton Wayne Manor, especially from from Batman Returns, since that also set during Christmas. That's a good pull. I didn't think of that until now, but you're right. Yeah, it does have that kind of feel about it. I, I think maybe not as well lit. As Wayne no, Manor. probably less of a budget overall. Uh, even yeah. though this does not feel like a cheap movie, it's very well shot for the most part. Yeah, I, I've got no qualms about the, uh, the the craft that went into this movie. Like, it is very. There's even a Dutch tilt in there if you want to talk about Batman. Um, <laughs> they they have one scene where they have a a very pronounced Dutch tilt, and I, I'm a big fan of uh, the use of that particular shot. So yeah, I, so yeah, so after this, we get to the storefront where Mom has. I think because of she's been motivated by Thomas's wavering belief, like let's go all out and you know hire Santas and basically hire Cirque du Soleil to perform out front. Like it's it's eighties excess, um, and really? yeah, like juggling flame flame pins, guys on stilts, guys on tr- flipping on trampolines. It's it's what does that have to do with Christmas? But maybe it's France. I don't know. Um, but so one of the people she's hired is, you know, our villain as the source Santa with that admittedly really chintzy beard. Like they didn't, they did skimp on their beard budget and, you know, he's passing stuff out. He has like, he has this one girl over and you can, you can interpret this moment as really sweet or if, if he has pedo vibes where he's like petting her face and stroking her hair. It's not, I, I, I feel like it's kind of ambiguous. Um, because I don't know if I view them as a pedo, I was, but I do view him as as a man child with murderous tendencies. And but it seems like he's just really genuinely enjoying the moment in whatever way until she drops on the best lines. I don't like your face. And mm. and then she's I think she sees that beard, like pulls it off, like you're not the real Santa. And he straight up slaps her hard. It's it's jarring. I think she's a great judge of character. She is uh, well based on what we learn about him. Um, and thankfully she got the least amount of his wrath compared to others. And also, thankfully, the mom is around to see this and fires him on the spot. Uh, and I feel like this is the point where things start to take it. After a pretty lighthearted first 20, 25 minutes, this is where we're starting to gradually take a dark and sinister turn. I also yeah, want to... Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to agree with you. I, I think that uh, up until that point, he's just kind of like a bit of a, a harmless weirdo but the moment that he hits that little girl i think is the point where i'm like ah there we go there we go like we knew it was coming it yeah. was just a matter of, of when and uh yeah from that point on he he really does Escalates. he goes very quickly very quickly there's uh, i feel like uh the scene with the delivery van arriving is really good at building up the tension and again growing this as a darkness where first he chokes out the driver 
And then, because they, it's obviously, you know, because they're rich, they have caretakers. And so the people are there like, oh, they're having Santa drop it off. And it just cuts to him like going, shh, and cuts away. And it's not until towards the end of the movie that we even get confirmation that he killed them. It's a very mm-hmm. like, oh, what did he do moment. Yeah, I, I think that they they definitely give you enough of an idea what's happening that you don't necessarily need the confirmation. But uh, it's it's good that they do give you that confirmation, I guess, because it gives you that that level of... Um, Completionism. It's sensationalism. There, there's the extra little shot where, you know, like, oh, look, more bodies. Because you a movie like this, you need the body count. And let's not forget that he spends three quarters of the movie failing to kill an old man and a little boy. So... yeah. Um, he he does need to um he he does all his killing at the very beginning of the piece and and then uh, they kind of space out the reveal uh, of those kills uh, so that it, it's a little bit more um balanced out i guess yeah so uh, there's also besides uh so two things happen for this point to to kind of complete the setup which is that i guess three thomas is getting ready to in the setup this uh security camera network and he's got this awesome i think even today it'd be awesome to have this like little wristband we can switch between the feeds mm. um so he kind of has can like survey have surveillance of the whole house and mom calls because she gets a feeling that he's staying up and she drops this i don't know if it's a french piece of folklore or if she just made it up she's like hey just so you know don't try and uh, see santa if he, he sees a kid watching him he turns into an ogre you don't want that um that was dumb, wasn't it <laughs> <laughs> that was that was that's a thing that's the thing that said in this movie Santa will turn into an ogre um, I wonder if that's got anything to do with Krampus I don't know yeah Europe loves their their dark uh, Christmas lore mm. and after this so again the villain and I'm just gonna call him Santa from now on because that's even what he's credited as Père Noël the, the, the French name for Santa uh, he finds that white spray and starts spraying his hair and beard white and he starts doing this weird giggling, like bouncing up and down with joy. And I think that's a part, like considering what we know about him by this point, it's genuinely unsettling. Like I, first time I was watching this, I'm like, I am nervous for what's coming. Yeah, yeah, and and you do also wonder why they didn't just do that to him so that he could play Santa more convincingly. Why give him that awful beard when you could just get a can of spray paint and just you know? They probably spent all their money on the trampolines. I guess, yeah, the budget wasn't there for it. <laughs> Even though, but she can afford her mansion. So the first act of this movie is pretty sweet and low-key, and I feel like that has to be on purpose to lull viewers who, are not, who don't know what they're in for into a false sense of security. So we're 35 minutes into this 90-minute movie, and this is where things start to happen. Thomas, you know, wakes up at midnight and sees... You know, I noticed Santa used a rope, which is uh, fair, logical. We no mm-hmm. logic from this guy. And initially, it's it's played very wholesomely and happy like there's happy music playing i feel like they kind of slow down the footage of santa moving him a larger than life movement he has a bag of gifts and tommy's just like oh my god it's happening then jr runs in the music cuts out and everything changes you know i i don't have a problem with the use of um uh, and this this is very much a trope, right? The yeah. um, the idea of oh, the dog is the first one to get it, or yeah. the the death of the dog is the thing that kicks things off. I think that it's been done very effectively in certain movies, like John Wick. Um, oh, I tried a John Wick. Yeah, but there there are some movies where you're just kind of like, yeah. you literally just couldn't murder anyone else, so you just went for the dog, didn't you? Like, I I think that. This being an early example of, of that is is really effective. 
Um, I think that I've seen it play out too many times at this point for right. it to be as So it doesn't hold up as well as it might have in 89. Exactly. That being said, it's pretty brutal the way that he just gets that cake slice. And I, I love the fact that his implement of choice is a cake slice. As yeah, he keeps it. Knife. Yeah, like he, he could have found the kitchen at some point and upgraded, but he just sticks with this thing, which shouldn't be threatening, but it's got a lot of reflectiveness to it. It catches the light in weird ways. And um, yeah, it has I, a visual flair. It's a visual flair, yeah, and and that's um, something that all movie killers need, you know, whether it's a chainsaw or a machete um, or knife fingers, you know, there's you have to have a gimmick, and his is um, he's an overzealous dessert chef who, <laughs> who's also uh, Santa, who is also Santa and also a serial killer. Uh, at this point, yes, he's he's done all his killing. Oh no, there's one more later on of a minor character, the the cop. We'll get to that. Um, so I, this is, you know, where the darkness sets in, like those lights that were just there for, for flair to like enhance the moment are out. And, you know, Santos stomps around and sees Thomas under there. It's like, there you are. And it's definitely by this point, it's not being played for fun. It's like, oh shit, this guy is dangerous. So Thomas runs, gets grandpa. I was like, we, we got to get the hell out of here. And one of the things they established is that they like to tinker with this old car that has like seminal, seminal value to the mom. It might've been the dad's. Hmm. And this is another scene that I was just like, oh my God, where they get in, they're trying to get started. They open the garage and the garage door and standing out front, there's Santa who's tracked them down and the music's really quiet at first. And then Santa walks up and slams his face into the windshield just abruptly. And it's like, what the fuck? And apparently the actor really did that and like split his forehead open because he was so dedicated to it. I mean, those windshields like... They take a pounding, so he must have headbutted that pretty fucking hard. That's that's mad. That yeah, and mad. then it just gets crazier. Things go slow mo. I notice they cut out voices. The camera angles go crazy, and there's no other word for it. The music starts like howling. It's this very ethereal, industrial thing, and I'm just sitting here with my first viewing of the job. We're going, this is this this rules, and I just just eating it up. This is the point where I'm like, the movie went from oh, this is novel to I legit like this. Mm. I think the one, the one problem that I had with this scene was the fact that he's got a sledgehammer and he's beating the shit out of the car, but if his uh, main aim is to kill these people... Windshield? Might, yeah, exactly. Go for the windshield, go for the side uh, windows immediately. Don't scare the crap out of them and then give them a window of opportunity to run away. Yeah, not um, the smartest killer. Not necessarily, but then, you know, I've just spent the last couple of weeks talking about Scream 1 through 5, so... Uh, smart and killer don't necessarily go together. Uh, in fact, uh, sometimes they're damned clumsy. That's true. That's true. So they do manage to escape and out the opposite end of the car that he's on. And this is where, uh, well, no, I think we saw it really briefly when they were getting from the bedroom to the car, the garage, but they didn't make a big deal out of it. But this is where they hide for a bit in this, this toy room. There's no other word for it. It's this big, larger than a life, like cavity in the, in the house where Thomas's ancestors, his dad and his, uh, grandfather on his dad's side have passed down their toys for future generations. Mm. It's very weird. It's just a room of requirement, essentially. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a safe place. It's a, a place that not even his mum knows about. You do wonder how many times she's been past that fridge and thought to herself, I don't remember buying that fridge <laughs> and going into it and being like, okay, this is some Narnia shit right here. Why is it so big in this refrigerator? Like, it doesn't make yeah, sense. you do think someone else would have found it. Maybe the caretakers did it just went, okay. <laughs> Who yeah. knows? 
I love that scene where he chases uh, Thomas into that room and Thomas goes through the fridge and um, the killer is just like, I need what? to wipe this blood off my face. And he just finds the crispest, whitest sheet that he can <laughs> that's hanging <laughs> of up drying and just wipes his face all over it. It's just, you inconsiderate bastard. Not only have you come into our home to kill our young, youngest and oldest, but on top of all of that, you're also going to sully our sheets with your bloodied forehead. No you respect. Animal. No respect whatsoever. I don't mind you trying to kill me, but leave my fucking washing alone, you know? Yeah, blood doesn't come out so easily. So I, I want to talk about that after Thomas sets this up, then this kind of starts this where there are like different objectives at one time to try and get help and try and figure this out. And this kind of cat and mouse chase begins. So Thomas rambles up again. Um, and at first he has a clear advantage to like convince his grandpa he'll be safe. Cause he's like, I got the surveillance page. Look, he's on the staircase. I'll just take an alternate route. Uh, the problem comes when Santa starts to catch on and smash the cameras. And uh, there's a long stretch without dialogue for here as Thomas makes his way to the office and we cut back and forth between him and Santa, like observing the whole house. Santa is great at being like genuinely creepy and menacing during this point, both with how they shot it and how this guy's posture or expression and lighting are. It's he's like no longer just a weirdo. He's like, this is a dangerous man. Yeah, he delivers that performance really effectively. And he you know, consistently through this movie gives the feeling of being really psychotic and unhinged. Yeah, just like you don't want to be near this guy. Exactly. You can never quite tell what he's going to do. Is he going to kill you or is he going to play hide and seek with you, you know? (laughs) And it turns out both. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's another favorite part here. So Thomas wants to get to uh, his mom's office which is like like an attic-like area. It's not a very pleasant-looking office. But when he gets there, Santa's already there and handing the phone like, you want me to dial for you? Like classic slasher stuff. And closes the door behind him. So so Thomas retreats onto the roof ledges. And Santa's like mocking him. Like, what are you doing? You'll fall. And there's another part I really liked here. And it's somewhat realistic for all the weird stuff that's been happening. Thomas finally breaks down at this point and starts crying, calling for his mom. And it's like, that's yep. what a kid would do. Yeah, it's sad. There's a there's a part during this as well where he he's trying to climb around the chimney and he slips. Yes, and they they have this. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> they animate his shadow as, as he's uh, dangling from the roof. It's a two D Peter Pan shadow. It is properly two D Peter Pan, and I I like it. I, I normally I would be like, come on, you didn't have a bigger budget for that, but. No, I, I kind of like the fact that they went to an animation studio and were just like, "Could you just animate a dangling child for us for like two seconds?" Oh yeah, it's quick, <laughs> but you still, but still long enough that you notice and go, "Could be a sec." Yeah, um, I mean it, that, or we put him in a harness and dangle him off the side of a wall. Yeah, that. To be fair, that it, it's this is an isolated thing that was this was done in the eighties sometimes before blue screen and CG were more complex. Like, have you ever seen Commando? Yeah, yeah, many times. When he jumps off the plane, if you watch that in HD, that silhouette from far away, you're like, oh, that's a cartoon. Oh, damn. Okay, I'm going to have to pay more attention. Yep, yep, after, I think it was that he jumps from, like, way up and ends in, and jumps in, like, knee-deep swamp water, and he's fine. Again, it's Schwarzenegger. Probably, maybe, you know, one of the influences for the action trappings of this film. But I'm just talking about, like, this part. There's a really good, trans. one of my favorite transitions in the movie where, where when Thomas is crying, it starts like pulling away from him. Uh, this music ramps up, this very like melancholy music. 
And there's this great transition as his voice echoes the music swells when he fades to a wide shot of the model house. And again, when I first watched the movie, I th- it was just on the novelty value, and I was just going to be like, oh, isn't this crazy? But it kept giving me like genuine moments of good filmmaking. Yeah, there are flourishes in this film. And, and that's why, you know, you can never really write off a movie just because you've never heard of it. It didn't get a wide release. The budget wasn't that great because, you know, pretty much everyone that's, that's involved in filmmaking, like they obviously have some level of talent for it. Now, obviously there are exceptions like the room. Um, he just said money. But, <laughs> but for the most part, like, you know, I, I think that if you're good enough to get a film off the ground and made, then there must be a reason for that. And you can see the reason for that very clearly whenever you uh, you watch this movie. There there are scenes that are beautifully directed. There are performances from actors like the guy that played Santa that, um, that deserve uh, more credit than they're given because of the fact that they haven't had a huge audience. Um, th- there's an awful lot to like about this movie. Uh, the problem is that it's just... I think it's inconsistent, mm. um, uh, like uh, uh, very inconsistent, and and it has some really goofy moments, and it has some really brilliantly structured moments as well, uh, and it, it's just uh, I, I think that the the best way to enjoy this movie is to just have fun with it. You know, as I said, it's the best bad movie I've ever seen. I'm not saying it's a bad movie because it has terrible acting or it's badly directed. I, I think ultimately it just comes down to the fact that like it's a killer Santa film um, about a Santa who, once he actually gets to the main body of the film, can't kill a diabetic man and a <laughs> kid. You know, like <laughs> he's so unable to uh, to perform he, the, the basic duty that he's set himself. But there's uh, there's a lot to like about this movie, even so. Yeah, yeah, I. I'm I'm kind of relieved that it's like you're still able to recognize like some of the qualities of it because I was I going in and I was like I think we're just going to approach it from different different points of view but it, there's I think there's more in common here than than I was expecting. Mm, no, absolutely. Sorry, I have my mouth full because I'm just eating an onion ring here. But um, one of the things that I've come to recognize about my taste in films is that even if it's a film that I didn't necessarily enjoy, it's very rare. That I'll come away from it without anything positive to say about it. Oh yeah, that 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 happens with with me in movies these days too. I mm. even like blockbuster, even like run the mill blockbusters. Like I didn't like the Sonic movie, but I was like Jim Carrey and, and Ben Schwartz were funny. There's funny exchanges in it. It's just not a good story. Um, I mean, I really like that Sonic movie, but I think that that is more of a case of um, a film outdoing my expectations of it. Yeah, people, everybody had low expectations and it wasn't quite that. Mm, exactly. We'll see about the sequel though. Um, but when, so stuff that at this point, where did I, let me find my notes. So, da, 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 da. Oh, uh, so after this, there's actually a nice moment where Thomas starts to outwit Santa. Remember when he traps him in the sauna <laughs> with the walkie talkie? Yep. That was that was satisfying, even though you know, like, well, that's not how he defeats him. But it's just, I love the fact that Thomas just stops to stare at him for a minute, like you, you bastard. And <laughs> um, and there's that a great moment afterwards where uh, Thomas is trying to uh, 
I think it was. Oh, it's because he accidentally used the uh, security and clo- puts the, the gates all over the doors, so he had to go yeah. and, and undo that. And then when he was getting back, there's a nice. Uh, I'm not even gonna call it fake up, but where like, he knows running down the stairs, like, all right, ready, Grandpa? And Santa is like lurking below there and trips him, and then genuinely like slices his leg with that cake knife, like cripples him. Yeah, yeah, he I'm, has to get a splint because of the, the positioning of where it was cut. It's it, thing, like he, he acts like he's crippled. I I think that that is the inexperience of a young kid that has seen what you're supposed to do. Yeah, it might be. Like, there's no need for him to take an entire side of a chair and strap it to his leg, but like he does. But he's watched um, Rambo. That's what you do. Yeah, like make he could have taken that chair, that construction that he made, and not strapped it to his leg. And just used it as a crotch, and that would have been absolutely fine. But the fact that he bandaged it to his leg, just that that was one of those points where I was just like, all right, okay, yeah, you expect me to believe that he's going to survive the um, the attack of, of this killer Santa now that he's got half of a fucking dinner set <laughs> taped to his leg. Um, I don't think so. Yeah, that's not an uh, advantage, Thomas. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. Not unless you're fighting vampires and you need a steady supply of wood. That's true. Wouldn't that be a yeah. twist if Santa was a vampire? Um, so I will say there's a very satisfying moment after this where uh, Thomas gets to the room with the intercom and sends a message to Santa. You killed my dog. You tried to kill me and my grandpa. And I just wanted to see you. And now I'm mad and I'm going to make sure you're scared. It's very nice that, that he gets yeah. – he kind of lets Santa know, look, I'm not backing down from you. So when I mentioned earlier about Predator – this is one of those moments that made me think of it because there is a discernible moment in that movie where Arnold Schwarzenegger figures out what the Predator is all about. And he, in his head, has a plan. He's not implemented it yet, but he's figured out what the Predator's strengths are, what its weaknesses are. And he has confidence in his ability to take advantage of that information to get the right outcome. Um, then he covers himself in clay and basically starts planning for the future the thing about this movie is that this this is the moment where he basically kind of hits rock bottom thomas this is and he's like do you know what i'm I'm sick of being afraid of you i'm not afraid of you anymore you've i've outwitted you i've outsmarted you i've locked you in a sauna i can take you and that's the moment where he gives that message over the intercom and he's like i'm not afraid of you anymore and i'm gonna take you out and uh, he does, you know, effectively um, do everything that he needs to do to take him out. It's just that uh, for whatever reason, uh, something happens that kind of uh, takes the advantage away from him at the last second. But everything that he had planned, like it's 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 good planning. It works. And it's it's that moment where your hero develops that plan, whether it be Kevin McAllister in, in Home Alone where he uh, has the montage of laying traps around the house. Uh, you know, I'm not afraid anymore. This is my home. Come and take it from me kind of thing. Uh, predator, where he builds all of the traps and right. decides that he's going to take down the Predator because he's heat-based vision and he knows how to mask his heat signature. And um, pretty much the entirety of Rambo from the point that he gets into the forests. <laughs> because when when Rambo is in the town, when he's locked up in the prison, He's powerless. He has no say over his future. But the moment that he's free and in the wilds and in, you know, in the middle of nowhere with just his wits and his knife, he is the man in possession. You know, he's the one that can 
affect the outcome and it's up to the police to uh come and get him and and that's where he's most comfortable he's he's back in the jungles of uh of vietnam at that point you yeah know? um and and it's it's a it's a part of storytelling mainly with action films but also as we mentioned things like home alone which is fairly common but i always enjoy seeing it because it's that moment where a character will just take charge of their own destiny rise to the challenge Exactly. And it's most effective in things like Hunger Games, where you have like a female character who is empowering themselves. Because yeah. the, there was a point where it was all just, you know, big, muscly male action heroes. And then you have Ellen Ripley turning up. And, and then there was a long fallow period where strong female action heroes weren't really a thing anymore. And, and then we got back to it with, uh, things like Hunger Games. And um, I think Maze Runner, although I've not watched it, I'm led to believe Ma- that Maze Runner's male. Oh, is it male? I thought yeah. there was a female. Uh, there is, but she's not the main main character. Okay, I see. But th- there are still. I, I think they're they're starting to get to the point where. Oh yeah, uh, Divergent is another one that was of that of that ilk, but that was female lad. There we go. You've you've got more examples on tap than I have. My my mom was obsessed with that that like phenomenon of of dystopian young adult movies so i kind of got a lot of it from osmosis um but uh so two things i want to bring up here we do get this montage where he takes a moment to like do stuff like apply iodine and stuff reflect and then bury jr while breaking down and there's basically the theme for this movie playing i forget what it's called i think it's just called merry christmas or something did you recognize that singer i didn't know that's Bonnie Tyler. Oh, of course it is. As in Total Eclipse of the Heart, Holding Out for a Hero. And they didn't just lift this. This was this song was made for the movie. There's a music video of it on the Blu-ray. That blows my mind. I know. Like get an, get an American uh, singer pretty much at her peak to do this like foreign film. That's very interesting. I don't mean to correct you, but I think Bonnie Tyler might be Scottish. Might be Scottish. Dang it. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna look that up right now. Double check it. Bonnie uh, Tyler is oh she's Welsh. Oh <laughs> man, okay, it's a little less weird because she is European. I knew I could claim her. <laughs> <laughs> Just wasn't sure on the nationality. Okay, yeah, I guess she she's a she's a British artist. Okay, so maybe it's a little less weird, but that is I think for American audiences it still might be like wait what? Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Um, you don't expect mainstream acts, especially ones that at that point she'd had massive success with Total Eclipse, I think. Um, yes, this was after Total Eclipse and Holding Out for a Hero. Right. And and we all remember just how amazing uh, that scene in uh, in uh, Short Circuit 2 is with uh, Holding Out for a Hero. Oscar, but- you will not get away. I am really pissed off. I fucking love that scene. I've watched that numerous times on YouTube and... Every time I just, I, I don't know, there, there's something about that combination of Johnny Five, the world's loveliest robot, yeah, um, being pissed off, and that music, and the cinematography, and the way they edit it together, and the fact that he's got a countdown timer, and he knows he's dying, but he wants revenge before he passes... It's just, it's, it's a perfect movie moment. And I know that there's going to be a lot of people that scoff at the idea that Short Circuit 2 might have one of the greatest scenes in cinema history. But for me, I genuinely think I'm not scoffing. I think that Short Circuit 2 is a legit good movie. It's that rare time where I I don't like the first one much and the second, like, really just improved everything. 
It's a superior sequel, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, and there's not many of them going around, but there's the obvious ones, and then there's Short Circuit too. But yep. um, yeah, like I'm not saying that you would scoff, but I know that there's definitely cinephiles out there who, if if I, oh yeah, I'm not critics critics Short dismiss Circuit. them both. Yeah, I'm not going to say I'm not going to sit here and say that Short Circuit Two is one of the greatest movies ever made, but that scene is up there genuinely with anything that you can throw at me. Two I, glorious I think, books. May I have these craphead? <laughs> it's totally perfect it's a shame that it uh unfortunately will always have a character uh, brown face yeah ben for brown face yeah yeah you shouldn't uh, be doing that in the by the 80s um, no but if i'm going to defend that character at all it's that um he is a lovely human being and he's very likable yeah and if it wasn't for the overblown accent and the fact that the actor is in no way shape or form uh indian or pakistani um, if it wasn't for that, then there would be no problem at all. But right. you know, we're it looking is, at it is what it is. Twenty twenty two. Yeah, yeah. So thou got Santa Claus. <laughs> so we get kind of after this this song, we get our most Home Alone ish moment with the montage of all the traps. And much like Home Alone, they're pretty brutal. Darts to the neck, setting you aflame. Um, I love that legit tense moment with the grenade and the toy train. Yeah, that was be- awesome. Because it doesn't pan out like Thomas wants, both because Santa turns it back and then it turns out to be a dud when he thinks it's going to blow up Grandpa hiding in the suit of armor. It's a genuinely tense, quiet moment. I mean, for for as intelligent as he is, he obviously doesn't understand munitions very well because, first of all, he spills half of the gunpowder on the floor. Yep. And um, second of all, he doesn't realize that the reason that firecrackers work is because they're in an enclosed space that's just big enough to hold the payload, right? So it's like, um, it's, it's that old uh, adage of like, um, if, if you put a firecracker in an open hand and light it, it's going to pop off and it won't do that much damage. But if you make a fist around it, you'll blow your fingers off. Um, yeah, like that, that, but that, that's very simple physics. It's expanding gases with nowhere to go. So they're going to go through the weakest part of you, which is probably your finger joints. Um, so he's taken the contents of a firecracker, which is probably about half the volume of, uh, of that grenade. He's poured it into the grenade. Then he's added a bunch of marbles. And I don't know how much volume there is inside that grenade, but I'm guessing there's still a lot of air inside there. Cause he put some wadding in there, but it's not really a lot of wadding. Is that enough? Uh, no. And the reason that rifles work is because you have the gunpowder and there's literally nowhere for that expanding gas to go except out of the end, end of a barrel. Uh, with a grenade, you need the grenade essentially to be weak enough that the explosive force uh, makes it explode at all angles. And clearly there wasn't enough going on to... I mean, I'm overanalyzing what is essentially just a, a MacGuffin, but... Well, uh, I think you might be right, because there should be a reason it doesn't work, and it's like, maybe he's smart about a lot of things, but munitions and that sort of chemical treatment might not be one of them. Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, his fire trap worked like an absolute gangbuster. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think I think my favorite is still the, uh, the darts. Not, yeah, they're brutal. Absolutely brutal. Like... He only managed to hit him with one in either side, though, because he loaded that thing with three. Um, Still, that's painful. Looks, oh no, it's painful enough with two. But can you imagine six? That would have been awesome. <laughs> like two like kind of weird bird with, uh, with with feathers around his head. <laughs> well, that would have looked a little cartoony because it's not. They're not playing it like Home Alone for comedy's sake. It's, you're supposed to like wince at it. You say that, but the face that he makes 
when he's hit with those darts is very reminiscent of Home Alone. Like, I was just expecting him to make that kind of uh, Home Alone face where uh, the the dude steps on the nail and he just <gasps> screams like a like a girl. Oh, the girl who scream is when the tarantula uh, in the first movie and the electrocution in the second movie. Oh, and the pigeons. So there are a couple couple uh, Marv screams. Yeah. Yeah, but um, so here's where we're, I think we're starting to get into the kind of end game here because he realizes before they try to escape that Grandpa is going into I think diabetic shock. He needs his insulin, mm. um, and so he starts running all the place to, like to the first aid areas trying to find it. And at one point, I I really like this because it was we, for, we forgot to mention that earlier Thomas hit him with like some marbles and ball bearings from a slingshot. And one of the things he also got on was like I think with some Velcro on the coat, a, a tracking device, a little tracker that Santa didn't seem aware of. And I guess the idea is at some point Santa realized this and let it loose on a vehicle. So actually, no, I I think Santa was waiting for him at this point because of what happens. But like a little another little toy vehicle comes in behind him with the tracker on it, and that's when Tommy realizes, oh shit, I don't have a bead on Santa. Yeah, uh, and he steps out, and Santa gets him in like a headlock knife to the to the neck and man this is what we're talking about like he could you could guess at this point like well the movie's not over he's not going to just kill him and that'll be it but you could guess like something will happen to get in his way to free thomas no you probably wouldn't guess he let like shoves thomas to the side and goes all right now i hide and you seek count to 20 no cheating well give me the fucking cake slice then because <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so weird and and I honestly, I think it it makes it makes things creepier. It does, it does, because it gives you that um, unpredictability that you somewhat lose when it's just a maniac coming for you all the time. Yeah, um, like I I wrote, you could easily have assumed this whole time his end goal is to kill Thomas, and he's just crazy like that. This gives off the vibe that even though he's willing to terrorize and hurt him, he's actually treating this whole event like a big back and forth game and. Maybe he doesn't even have an end goal in sight. Like he's not thinking about his own safety or escaping. He's, he's we don't know, and it's just making him this harder to read is just adding to the tension. Mm, absolutely, it's it's a very effective way of uh, prolonging the uh, the the story as well. Yeah, and it also I think the no cheating line has one of my favorite little payoffs uh, in the cop car. So. Thomas, at this point, um, because we do cut back and forth periodically to the mom and her boyfriend who've kind of – she's getting worried because she can't get through to the house or the caretaker. Got it. She has that sense like something's, something's wrong. And the boyfriend offers, let me just – I'll have him, a cop car go check on it. And somebody does show up and is pretty immediately killed by Santa. So the, the car is just there. And the cop's body is there with his gun. Let's remember that. Thomas then goes to the caretaker college cottage where we do get visual confirmation with their bodies. He just doesn't see them. And he gets the insulin. And I think his idea was to drive back to the mansion to pick up grandpa and then, and then get the hell out of there. Because again, they showed that he was actually able to drive that old car around the estate. So it's not, again, it's not just out of nowhere. Oh, this kid's driving. And one of my favorite moments, he, it's this shot of inside the car from behind, like the passenger seat area, looking at Thomas and he starts radioing and like, it goes on for a little bit, like, this is car, blah, blah, blah. Okay, come in. We hear you. And he's like, this is Thomas. I'm at the estate. Send help. Santa leaps from behind the back seat and screams, you're cheating! And <laughs> Thomas freaks out and crashes the car. And I loved this. It's like a weird sort of code for Santa. Like, he didn't mm-hmm. immediately jump Thomas. He waited to, until he got confirmation that, oh, you're calling help? You're not supposed to do that. 
It's a really vicious game of hide and seek, isn't it? It's like you get the feeling at that point that he is just playing this awful, awful game where, unfortunately, if you're an adult, then you're no use to me, so I'm going to kill you. But yeah, he does it's, leave confused. It's, man, I, <laughs> I'm i okay with you calling this the best bad movie ever made because it at least means you got entertainment out of it. And I am legit, like, there's just, it keeps throwing these moments where I'm like legit, like, wow, like, this is really cool. Um, and again, this is a movie that I kept thinking was just going to be a novel. Oh, it's, I think the hang up you have that, it's like, well, it's still a killer Santa movie. And I'm like, yeah, but it's one that they put a lot of clear thought into. And I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I agree. It's, um, there's a lot to like about this movie. There really is. It's, it is silly. But it's yes. uh, it, it's a lot of fun as well, and it's it's definitely one that I'm I'm going to be recommending to a few people. That's cool. So let's get to since we'll be recommending, let's get to the the ending, which is so again. Thomas crashes the car, so it's it's he can't get out now. I do like that he sees that uh, Santa's still kind of semi conscious and takes the time to handcuff him to like one of the poles in there to save him some time uh, or buy him some time. And he trips over – well, he's like you know limping back to the house. He trips over the body of the cop and realizes the cop still has his gun. Santa didn't take that. And there's a very effective scene. Uh, and they're both like looking really worse for wear at this point. Like you talked about Thomas is like covered in like green mud and, and clay. They're both mm-hmm. sweating all over the place. There's probably blood all over Santa's face. And so Santa walks up to him but just stops and Thomas points the guns at him and before he does anything, he breaks down crying again and just asks why and Santa mm. doesn't tell him. Yeah. And again, going back to the beginning where we said that sometimes you'll get too much information about the motivations or the backstory of a killer. And uh, in, in this one, it's just like, well, there, no good will come of me telling you at this point because it will be disappointing. Uh, the best way to approach it is to just let the audience go on what they already know about me. And it's fair enough that Thomas is asking why, because of course you'd want to know, but that doesn't mean you have to give an answer. Exposition is not always a good thing. And uh, there's something about the unknown, which is uh, even more terrifying as well. Yeah, like, it helps. The way he's left, he's, he's, he's not comatose, but he is in a slightly vegetative... Oh, Thomas? Uh, yeah, he's a, yeah. He's a well, vegetative yeah. Slave. Let's get let's get to that. So he he does a, at one point fire the gun, and I think he either grazes Santa or gets him in the leg because he Santa falls to the ground and he's limping in his final moment. Uh, he gets back and gives Grandpa's insulin. There's kind of a close close call where you're not sure Grandpa's alive, and it's pretty emotional actually. And a great shot where Thomas is we're getting a side view of him leaning down to the Grandpa. He leans up, and right behind him, there's Santa standing in the door frame. And mm. I want to bring up, I guess Santa fell in the snow and mud. If that gunshot, he looks like hell. He looks like Swamp Thing. He's uh, just a mess of muck and matted hair and blood. And he has his final motion is also odd because rather than act vicious again, he starts kind of limping toward, toward Thomas with like an open hand outstretched. Like, please play or like, please help. And, and you could interpret yeah. a lot from that. But it's, it's again, it's, it's unsettling. He does this a few times during the movie. Uh, when he's approaching the car in the garage, um, he just kind of opens up his arms in like a welcoming pose. Yeah, it's very mm-hmm. odd. But then he headbutts the screen and, and yes. basically goes mental. So he, he does that a few times where like he 
I'm not sure he knows how he's going to react. I, I think he just goes with whatever feels right in the moment, which is very unsettling because, you know, some slashers, and I, I feel fairly comfortable in putting him into the slasher genre here. Yeah. Some slashers are, are very fixated on just getting the job done. You know, you look at, again, I'd name check them earlier, but Jason and... Uh, and um, Freddy, Ghostface... Well, not, not, not Freddy so much because Fre- Freddy is is definitely one to get the job done, but he'll make a few quips before. Okay, what about Leatherface? Leatherface, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But definitely, um, you're talking Jason Voorhees and um, oh my god, Michael Myers. Right? Uh, yeah, they are very much like I'm just going to keep coming at you, and the first chance I get, I'm going to kill you. Like I'm not going to play around with you. I'm not going to put you in a full sense of security. My job is to get close enough to you to stick you with a sharp metallic object, uh, possibly pin you to a wall, and uh, make an example of you. And that's what they do. This guy, on the other hand, he will do that to you. But would you like to play hide and seek first? Yeah, he's going to toy with you. Um, really? Yeah, like not in some mastermind way either. Just like on a whim, almost. Mm, yeah, like he, he's he's a slave to his impulses, which is probably the scariest uh, version of a of a serial killer that you can possibly be uh, confronted with because they can't really be reasoned with. It's that they're a slave to their emotions, and um, we all know how uh, how difficult it can be to <laughs> to reason with the unreasonable. Yeah, and again, I do want to give props to his actor because he has to sell a lot of this through his face and his eyes. Um, mm. And just a fun note, I looked up his IMDb, and unfortunately he passed away a couple of years ago, Patrick Florsheim. Um, mm. But uh, he did, It was he had a very varied uh, body of work because he did do other live-action work. He also did a lot of narration and for documentaries and voice acting for uh, games and animation. And here's the most interesting thing. You know how... You know, non-English speaking countries will dub uh, American movies and they'll get like go-to people to be consistent with the voices. Yeah. This actor for a time was the go-to voice for Michael Douglas, Jeff Bridges, Robin Williams, Christopher Walken, and many more. Uh, oh, so yeah. he definitely had some cred under his belt. Fair play to him. Fair play to him. And he's, he's an excellent actor in his own right. Like I will not take away anything from him. His performance from beginning to end in this movie is is really, really well done. Yeah, and uh, I want to give credit to uh, Thomas as well for a kid. I think he sells yeah. these emotions quite well. He does. He does. Like he never, it never feels like he's over-egging it. No, you know, like there's there's just the right level, and especially at the end, I, I mentioned before about this vegetative state. Yeah, let's he, get to the end. Well, so. It ends up being Grandpa who basically is the one to kill Santa, and he has to kind of wing it because he's got that 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 blurry vision. But you know, you can see that big red blob, so he has an idea. And the mom and the boyfriend arrive just after this. Santa's corpse is on the floor. Uh, Grandpa's you know still in the suit, but okay. And Thomas is just thousand yard stare, traumatized by this whole ordeal, which is completely understandable. You know, like I was watching. Um she never died just before we recorded. And um, that's a fun movie. Uh, however, one of the characters in that movie, uh, you're introduced to her, um, handcuffed to a bed, uh, assumedly about to be murdered by a couple of guys who have put plastic sheets all over the, uh, the, the, the apartment. 
and there's blood splatter over the side, so God knows what she's seen in her life. As soon as she's rescued, not at all affected. At all. You know, she's just like, right, we're going to crack on now. Um, Let's be friends. You rescued me, and I saw you stabbed a thousand times, and you didn't die. What's up with that? Uh, That's not the normal way that you would expect someone to react. I mean, it can happen, of course. People block these emotions out and experiences out all the time in order to, to function on a level. But... What I really love about his performance is that, like, he's a young kid who's never had to go through anything like that. And once he reaches the point where he doesn't have to have his wits about him because there's no longer any danger, once he's safe, he just shuts down, which feels like the most natural reaction to that kind of situation. Like, the number of times I've watched a slasher movie and the final girl or guy or whoever that survives just kind of like wanders out in a slight daze with all of their cuts and bruises and injuries, but otherwise seems to be able to function perfectly fine. I'm just kind of like, I that would not be me. Yeah. <laughs> I would be able I, to deal with that. Some, something that other podcasts brought up that I might have forgotten about otherwise, uh, Thomas still believes this is the real Santa throughout the movie. You can assume mm. he was told otherwise after this, but like he is convinced he angered and led to the death of Santa. I think it's time that we tell you, Thomas, that Santa isn't real. Of course he's not real because I killed him. (laughs) He was real. Um, You know another movie that ends with a really great protagonist breakdown? Did you ever see Captain Phillips? Yes. Yes, I love that film. Remember that ending with him being like getting the checkup and he starts crying and stuttering and it's just the trauma comes out? No such thing as a bad performance from Tom Hanks. I'm, no, I'm that's one you, of his best moments, I think. Even if you look at movies that got critically panned, like uh, Cloud Atlas. I kind of like Cloud Atlas. <laughs> hey, look, I'm not saying that you shouldn't like it. I'm just saying that the critics didn't. Yes, particularly yes. Like it. um, it's a Chelsea's. It's not surprising. Tom Hanks is still a marvel in that movie. I, I genuinely, in all the, the time that I've uh, I've been watching movies, I've never seen a bad performance from that guy. And if if you've not seen It's a Wonderful Day in the Neighborhood... I need Please to Please watch it because it is a fucking amazing movie. And Tom Hanks has done an amazing job with that film. Yeah. I'm curious to see how he channels Mr. Rogers. Cause I, I did grow up on him. So that'd be interesting. But yeah, that is the, the end of the movie is the final. We don't get some happy epilogue showing things are recovered. It ends there with Santa saying, it's my fault. I wanted to see Santa Claus pan over the body of, of Santa and his boots on this dead fireplace credits very french ending yes exactly hive mind in operation once again we both said it at the same time feels like a very french ending (laughs) very nihilistic yeah at least he survived but yeah he's gonna he's gonna need some therapy but yeah it's it that is uh dial code santa claus which even though i think we have different ways in which we enjoyed it i think we both recommend yeah, no, absolutely. Like I said, I'm going to recommend it to a couple of friends. I think you already know who they are. Yeah. Um, so Andy and, and David will be getting a message shortly after this saying, hey, look, guys, I don't know if you've got access to this, but I might have a copy of it that you can look at. Uh, are they in the US? <laughs> yeah, David's in the US. Andy's in Germany. So okay, I don't yeah, know. Might, it might take copy. some work for Europe. Behind the scenes, mentioned we had to do some finagling to get Dave to be able to watch this. Yeah, but uh, we we got there in the end. Basically, yes. I I travelled and we we both watched your copy. Yes, let's go with that. <laughs> That's definitely what happened. In no way was a digital copy 
Traded. Um, so yeah, um, I, I I think it's a really fun movie to watch. It's it's not a brilliant movie, but I think there's an awful lot to like about it. And certainly, if you're going on like a balance of payments kind of issue, there's a lot more to like about this movie than there is to dislike. Um, and, and like, there's been very few times in my life. I think there's two, three occasions where I've come out of a movie and I've been like, I don't know why I bothered watching that. One of them was Meet the Spartans. Another <laughs> one was Deathgasm. Uh, what was the second? Deathgasm. Never even heard of that one. So it's a New Zealand movie from about 20... Oh, God. It's from the 20-teens. I'm okay. not entirely sure when within the 20-teens. Uh, we reviewed it on an early episode of Erie International, and I was not a fan, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, keep meaning to rewatch it to see if my opinion may have changed, but uh, I, as of yet, have not got around to doing so. Um, I, just, I have seen I, Meet the Spartans, and I can agree with you there. Oh, what a waste of fucking time that Direct. was. We very nearly... I, it's a good job it was such a short film, because we very nearly walked out before it finished. Sure, um, sure. Just awful. And and when you think the pedigree of the movies that came before that, because you're talking about the studio that was responsible for um, Scary Movie and uh, one or two other series that tried to lampoon cinema, and then you've got Meet the Spartans, which is basically, let's do Scary Movie, except for movies that aren't horror. Yeah, I feel like that wave of... Like, those directors also did, like, Disaster Movie and Epic Movie, and it was just kind of like, let's not be clever with our parodies. It's just, let's just throw a bunch of references together, even if it makes no sense for them to be together. Just what's yeah. hot at the moment, and it was very it, lazy. Very much the law of diminishing returns with that. Like, even Scary Movie, by the time that... I think I can pinpoint the moment where Scary Movie jumped the shark, and it was when the actress that played the Sydney analog uh, decided to go blonde. Um hmm. And she's, she, she looks wonderful as a blonde, but it just so happened to coincide with those movies really not being very good. Yeah. Anymore. I, I haven't seen any of the scary movies, but I know people generally like the first two. One and two are great. I think three is the one where they went after signs. Um, and that was really for me where they started to lose it big time. And then after that, like the fourth one was absolutely horrendous. Um, and there was a fifth, I remember with Ashley's Tisdale. Jesus, I didn't even bother with the fifth one. Uh, like, they lost me after the fourth. But yeah, so... Um, on that awesome. note... <laughs> yeah, on that note, let's, let's, not, let's not dwell on, on bad let's things. Let's dwell on a cool movie instead. So yeah, again, um, if you are in the US and want to get streaming access to this, it's on Prime Video and also the uh, streaming horror service Shudder, which I believe does have a free trial option if you just want to check this out. And if you're a physical media connoisseur, uh, Vinegar Syndrome is selling the Blu-ray and 4K set. That should be available online at most retailers. And uh, Europe-wise, I think it does have DVD and Blu-ray releases as well. It just might not be as easily accessible legally streaming. I'm just going to check because up until yesterday, I didn't have Amazon Prime. And now I do. So I didn't even think to Okay, check. you want to search first for Deadly Games. That's the title on on streaming for some reason deadly games let's have a look for deadly games and it is okay interesting you can get it on blu-ray and dvd but they do not have a prime video listing for it do they have a rental option 
There is not a rental option either. Oh. They don't have it digitally at all. However, that is under Deadly Games. I will do my due diligence and have a look for the others. Okay. Uh, yeah, Dial Code Santa Claus is the other common one. Um, I think when it was first being distributed by the genre archive, they went with Deadly Games. But at this point, uh, I believe like the the Blu-ray releases under Dial Code Santa Claus, which is closer to the American title, which is like an area code, and then Perry Noel, which is Santa Claus. I I just go by Dial Code Santa Claus because it's the most uh, distinct. I think. Mm. I'm not having any luck with any of the searches that I've uh, I've done here. So yeah, Dang. it looks like it's American Amazon Prime uh, video that you'll find it. But yeah, not and I think here. you said Shredder is not in the UK or it's not on that list. Shudder is in uh, the UK, uh, but I don't have access to it. And also, it's one of those services, very much like Netflix, where depending on the region, yeah, you can have, have a very, very different listing. So, can't guarantee anything, I'm yeah, afraid, Pete. But look, wherever you live, whatever you got to do, try and seek this movie out, because it, it is worth a viewing at the very least. Very and- much yeah. I'm very happy we could do this discussion and had, and as I suspect, I've had a lot of fun kind of dissecting and analyzing it. Uh, so I want to thank Dave again for, uh, coming on. This is good. I like, I like how we said, let's go for an hour and a half and now we're at two and a half. Uh, <laughs> that's just how we roll. It is indeed. So where can people find you online and any projects, uh, you want to promote? Uh, well, I'm, uh, I'm on Twitter at Real Dave Roberts and you can find a pinned tweet there, uh, with a list of all of the things that I either am currently doing or was doing and kind of fell off of. Uh, two podcasts to mention, Eerie International and Generation Animation. One of them is a horror podcast. I'll let you guess which one that is. And the other one is an animation podcast. Again, I'll let you guess which one that is. Um, I do have a third podcast, which is a very occasional one called The BS Cast. You can find that in most places. But again, my, my Twitter will have a link to everything. And uh, I was doing a, uh, a Let's Play uh, YouTube channel for a while. It's kind of gone on the back burner since December, just because I needed to pair back on the things that I was taking on. Uh, I was also going to say, you talked about it last time you were here, and you were like, yeah, I'm I'm playing this uh, football game, and I'm waiting for eFootball and seeing how that goes, and that has not gone well. Yeah, so that went badly. Um, oh. <laughs> eFootball 2022 is an absolute garbage fire, and uh, hopefully it will be fixed some point in the near future. Uh, the plan originally was that they were going to start releasing content at the beginning of the year, but they put that back because it's awful. So yeah, I, I've still been playing Pro Evolution Soccer 2021. Uh, that's what my most recent series was based on because it's the best version of PES that you can kind of get at the moment. It's a shame that they withdrew the digital version on Steam because I would very happily buy it on Steam and mod the crap out of it uh, so that it would be up to date with all the latest kits and mm. transfers. But there we go, such is life. But... Yeah, so Dave plays on YouTube. You can find the link on my Twitter again uh, at Real Dave Roberts. If you fancy watching someone playing Pro Evolution Soccer badly while talking over the top of it, then um, that might be for you. But uh, otherwise, that's that's pretty much everything that I've got going on. Nice. Uh, myself, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram mostly at Behan Art B E H O N A R T. Uh, I'll sometimes post stuff related to other projects from there, like, uh, the Wario reanimated, Wario Gold collab I'm doing. Um, and 
you can look forward soon. I would say if you aren't already, uh, join the Discord server list that I list in the uh, episode uh, descriptions lately. Because not only do I have a section for the podcast, uh, I've also started Chance of Flurries, a secondary weekly or bi-weekly podcast with my brother, which is kind of a smaller, more compact and casual take on this where we talk current media. And uh, look forward soon to uh, news on more animation projects. I'm really getting underway on both the new Wario and Spacious, my like big time passion project that's fully original. And you can definitely see more of those on Twitter and also my YouTube, uh, which is just B-H-O-N, Behon. So again, uh, thanks, big thanks today for coming and a, uh, uh, a big, uh, thank you to, for, for listening. And I'm just looking up, uh, I know there was like a, tr- a tagline for this movie. I'm just trying to find what it, what it is. I think I, I could swear it was something like he's home, but he's not alone or something dumb like that. But I, well, it's true. He has the grandpa, but. I, I, maybe that would have had to come after the fact because that was this is again this is a pre. I mean that absolutely points to the fact that somebody was aware of it before they made their own film. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm thinking another movie. Uh, I don't I don't want to pin that on this movie because that's a very. <laughs> it might be some like really shitty other Home Alone knockoff. <laughs> Shoe fits wear it. That's what I say. All right. Good night, all. Take care.